Well, it's that time of the year again. March Madness is here. We've got two weeks until opening day, and the Bears have gone from bad to worse. Welcome back into Behind the Yellow Line, another Friday night. We're talking mostly Chicago Cubs baseball here. A lot going on. We've got Jeremy Spector. We've got Randall Sanders. I'm Ronan O'Shea. Coming up a little bit later this evening, another guest this week. We're going to bring in our buddy Greg from Lansing, Michigan, a longtime Lansing Lugnuts season ticket holder. We wanted to talk minor league baseball rule changes with Greg. So he's going to be joining us a little bit later. But a lot to get to on the show here as well. We want to recap the last week plus in Cubs spring training, some good things, dominant pitching performance earlier in the week. Also some big time names going off offensively this week. We'll talk about all of that. We'll also take our preview here to the infield. A couple of locks already set here with Bryant, Javi, Rizzo, and Bodie. What about the extra spots on this Cubs infield? Who's going to land there? We'll make our predictions there. And then of course, we'll make some time for trivia. And as we said, talk minor league baseball rule changes. So a lot to get to. Randall, how are you doing tonight? Doing well, Ronan. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, uh, a big Bears fan, you know, all off season here, we've been saying, okay, maybe Russ is coming to town. Other people were hoping maybe Deshaun Watson was possibly coming to town, although maybe people are feeling a little bit differently about that right now. But what did the Bears do? They went out and they got Andy Dalton. How does that make you feel? You know, being Jewish, I've never experienced not getting what you wanted for Christmas on Christmas morning. I have to feel, I have to imagine it feels a lot like this. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. Uh, and then the Bears season ticket holder here, Jeremy Spector, joining us. Uh, Jeremy, wanted to ask you about something else. You're probably feeling pretty good right now. Big win for your Illini earlier today, beating up Drexel. But I know you're afraid. You've been fearing Loyola for a long time here. What do you think about the game Sunday? Uh, well, yeah, big win today. Uh, you know, get good to get that first game out, especially since none of the guys on the team really have any – Tourney experience last year's being canceled, obviously. Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of this uh, Sunday matchup. I don't like the uh, in-state rivalry aspect of it. You know, I, those Loyola guys they are going to be coming because it's their game. Plus, I would have liked to have rooted for Loyola a little bit. I don't want to be the ones knocking out Sister Jean. So, uh, you know, it's not a fun game, really, I feel like. But uh, I, I still like our chances pretty good. Sure, sure. I mean, the Illini uh, certainly have earned their spot here, one of the top teams in the tournament. But it feels a bit like a trap game, Jeremy. I got to say, though, you know this is like a Super Bowl for Loyola, and um, they look pretty good today, a closing off a win in uh, Indy. Yeah, they did. They, uh, you know, Georgia Tech, they it was a pretty close game for a while, but they were able to pull it out, run it, you know, run away with it a little bit at the end. But yeah, you know, I'm sure Brad will have the guys ready for uh, that matchup Sunday, but uh, it's going to be a big game, especially for all those local kids, you know, that probably would have won a scholarship offer to Illinois, but didn't get it. So it's their chance to prove it. Yeah, well, it'll be good stuff here. It continues to roll on another tournament. Purdue shits the bed here. So at least that gives me a little bit of satisfaction as an Indiana fan. A bit of a tough day for us, though. I woke up with a little bit of optimism that maybe Indiana would pull off the unthinkable and, and bring Brad Stevens home. That's not going to happen, though. He's staying in the NBA. He wants to continue to make it work, I guess, in Boston. And uh, he's not coming to IU. So who knows where and they're you, going with it. You better it, get but... those ears ready, buddy. Oh, yeah, there's going to yeah, be little... some orally pleasing stories coming towards you. I, I look forward to hearing it. We had a little wager earlier today, and uh, I'm in for story time from our buddy Ray having lost that bet. But to be honest with you, I've heard all of his stories one million times, and hopefully he'll be joining us soon here on the show. Um, speaking of college basketball, though, our guest, Greg, 
big Sparty fan, and they fell apart in the second half last night in their uh, first what play-in games, whatever you want to call those those first four games now. Um, so maybe we'll get his thoughts on that. But I've got some really good trivia. We'll kind of touch back on some March Madness when it gets to trivia. But we didn't really get a chance last week to get into what's going on with Cubs spring training. And a big reason for that is we had a wonderful guest appearance. So thanks again, Alexander Hall and at Cubs weather, really fun conversation. Guys, I love weather. It's something that I'm always bothering you all about. When you guys get snow back in Chicago, I'm jealous. When I get snow here, I like to share it with everybody back home. We got two feet of snow last weekend. It was awesome. It was everything I was looking for, but uh, thanks Alexander Hall, really fun conversation. I don't know about you guys. Like, We've been to a lot of games at Wrigley over the years, from snow in April on opening day to crazy thunderstorms in the summer to some fog bowls that we've been at games at. It's just part of the fun of baseball. You play outside. It lasts multiple seasons. I like talking about that stuff. I hope we can get him back on soon. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. It was very interesting, and and, uh, the weather aspect. uh, That fall game was pretty good we went to against the Nationals. Uh, Doug Fister on the mound for that one, but – Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I was a good guest. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Big, yeah fun stuff. And we'll big, keep thanks that going. To, big thanks to Alex after last week. And uh, I know he was uh, very happy to have been on with us. He mentioned it after the fact. So as you said, hopefully we can get him back again soon when the regular season starts and the, the weather starts playing an even bigger role. Well, let's talk about some good things that happened at spring training here over the last week for the Cubs. I want to start with pitching because I think that's the big question mark this year with the team. We all seem pretty confident they're going to score some runs. The defense, particularly the infield defense, should be good. Now the question is who's going to be picking up innings in that starting rotation? And a good sign yesterday, at least a 4-3 win over the Cleveland Indians. 16 strikeouts from Cubs pitching to just one walk. Jake Arrieta, four innings, five strikeouts. Dylan May with a nasty slider struck out a couple as well Randall that's about as nice of a pitching performance as you're going to find in spring training and let's just hope that that's a sign of what's to come this year for the Cubs yeah you know Dylan Maples uh, it's uh it's a rite of passage every spring we go maybe this is the year he figures it out we uh we watch the maple trees come in every year um he's out of options so there's a very good chance he makes that opening day roster and the Cubs determine he'll either figure it out or they will uh, take him off the 40 man. Uh, but yeah, you saw all of Dylan Maples uh, yesterday. He had the, the wicked slider going. He got those strikeouts. Um, he also lost control of it a couple times. He, his, his final pitch of the day, I believe, he got a swing strike on a pitch that hit the batter. And I don't think anything is quite as Dylan Maples as that. So uh, we've talked about it previously. The Cubs have a lot of strikeout arms in that bullpen. And that will be, I think, a good change of pace from their more pitch to contact rotation and Dylan Maples will, will say it until he either figures it out or he's gone. If he figures it out, that is a huge weapon out of the bullpen. He throws hard. He's got a great slider. He's got swing and miss stuff and relievers are volatile creatures. And maybe this is the year he figures it out. And that would be another big boost to that bullpen. Yeah. Yesterday was an interesting, interesting day. Uh, Arietta, as you said, pitched pretty well. Um, I think for the most part, you know, it's still spring training, but the first four pitchers, I would say in the rotation who have all pretty much locked down their jobs, not that we had questions about it, but you know, you never know if somebody comes out to struggles, uh, you know, I, I, they've all looked pretty solid. The question has been that fifth role between Alec Mills and Edward Elzelai, who's really kind of, I, I like Elzelai just cause he has more stuff, but he struggled a little bit and he more stuff than the rest of the starting rotation as he can actually run his fastball up. 
But yeah, that was a big day, big performance. I'm a little, I, I don't think Dylan Maples is going to, I'm a little down on him. I don't think he's going to make the roster. I think, if, I think there's already, you know, there's some other guys that probably have a better shot. The one guy I do think has a shot that would be a surprise was kind of Shelby Miller, who was pitched pretty well. I think he's got a shot at coming out of the bullpen, maybe in a swingman role. Um, interesting today, they optioned Kyle Ryan down. So it doesn't look like he's going to make the team, so, but uh, you know, you're going to have a lefty, uh, battle if there's for a second lefty in uh, Brad Wick or Rex Brothers who's pitched pretty well coming in so you know it's I I like this bullpen I like having the option of having a bunch of guys that have good stuff can strike people out you know somebody's gonna find it somebody's not and then you go from there so uh, the question will be more for me the rotation and Kimbrough on the back end <laughs> yeah Shelby Miller kind of a dark horse uh, for a bullpen spot coming in as a non-roster invitee and uh, a role in that bullpen that's kind of uh, come back into come back into vogue the last couple of years is that multi-inning guy, the guy who might be able to give you three innings two or three times a week. Shelby Miller's pitched very effectively here in the spring. He's got a new breaking ball that he's worked on over the past season, and he's gotten a lot of strikeouts on that on that pitch this spring. Um, and you know, the, the Cubs have talked about how because nobody has pitched a full season in two years. You're going to need guys to fill in and, and pick up those multi-inning stints if they're not spot starting. And with the makeup of the modern bullpen, Shelby Miller may have pitched himself into a spot. Yeah, he's been pretty good. And he he's always had kind of the stuff, you know, and to see him coming back, uh, it's, a, it's a nice little ride for him. You know, he's 30 years old and probably this is one of his last few chances to make the club. So you're, I'm rooting for the guy. And uh, he's looked pretty good to me. I, I've liked him a lot. And it's uh, him uh, – uh, you know, you mentioned Maples earlier. Uh, another guy was Brendan Little, who looked pretty good for a while coming from the left side, just as guys that kind of showed good stuff and could be interesting. Uh, but I think Miller can make it. I think he's got a shot at making it, at least for the start. You know, Roan Wick's going to be out. So there's a spot that's opened up. It'll be determined who probably whoever loses that fifth spot, Alzali and Mills, they're probably one of them will go to the bullpen as another swing man. So it's interesting there's, but most of the bullpen I would say is probably pretty settled. There's like six guys that you probably know are going to be in there. All those years after they traded Javi for uh, Shelby Miller that one night and then didn't trade for him. So good to see him coming home. Well, Jeremy, and to your point about starting pitching, Zach Davies strong today, four scoreless innings. And then we've talked about the back end of the rota- uh, the bullpen, rather. Craig Kimbrell got a scoreless frame earlier this week with a strikeout, sat 96. This time of the year, you know, you don't really need to worry about the numbers, I guess, for a guy like Kimbrell. He's an established veteran, still a relief to see a zero up there in terms of earned runs. He just needs to be ready to go here in two weeks. And maybe this is a sign that he's starting to put it together. Yeah, the one thing about Kimbrell is we've seen him struggle a lot and then kind of put it together as he's built himself up. He did it last year, unfortunately, in the season. But uh, so we've seen that. So, you know, I still have a little bit of faith. Cubs think so. Um, he did he, he didn't give up a base runner in his last appearance, but it wasn't really like a hard hit ball. I don't remember, I don't believe so. It was a strikeout single, I think. And then uh double play actually a very nice double play by uh Baez and Nico Nico made a great turn on that like a jump it was a, but, it was a uh, single it was a single into right center it wasn't hit hard it wasn't hit soft right uh, it was just a, yeah yeah it was it was just a single yeah so you know but it's nice to see him get out of an inning without giving up a run or multiple base runners 
Yeah, and, and he's got a couple weeks here to get it all figured out and make sure he's ready to go for opening day, but still a relief to see a zero for earned runs, and, and maybe he is putting it together here. Um, offensively, some big names having a good week. Wilson Contreras with a home run, a triple, five driven in on St. Patrick's Day, so he's sort of leaning in there to the luck of the Irish. Ian Happ looking like a leadoff hitter as well, a multi-hit day, drew a walk, and then I think yesterday, David Bodie launched his first home run, a two-hit day as well, so we're starting to see him figuring it out offensively and it's just nice seeing those guys getting it going i saw that uh, uh jason hayward had a two-hit day here as well so it's a guy who's been slow to get things going offensively in the spring but maybe he's starting to catch up now with the bad as he tweaks some final things here over the last two weeks yeah the dolphin wilson had a big day the other day i was actually a little disappointed they pulled him he was a uh, a double away from the uh, cycle so I was like, you know, keep him in, even though it was spring training. Uh, Peterson obviously has been going off, you know, still. And uh, Nico kind of had that hot start. He slowed down a little bit. But Bodie, Bodie crushed a few balls. And and Mariznick hit one yesterday that he, he blasted one. So it's, it's nice to see him get back into the lineup. He hit pretty well when he played in the B, uh, B game uh, a, f- a few days ago, which was really his first action after, you know, I think he had a hamstring problem. Say Brom back in a B game, and he had, he had he is like the only guy that actually had hits in that game. But uh, you know, so it, it's nice to see some offense lately. Um, it's really like that back end of the rotation that it kind of scares me at this moment. But when that lineup hits, it's pretty long. So um, not you know, it's it's been nice to see. Yeah, we, I don't want to say we know this team can hit after the offensive struggles the last few seasons. But it, it, for as down as we've been on this team, it is sometimes easy to forget. You have a lot of good players with track records on this team. You have Anthony Rizzo. You have Wilson Contreras. You have Jock Peterson, who maybe hasn't been a great offensive player for his career, but he's been a decent one. You've got guys who, if they play up to not even overachieving, if they play up to their career averages, you're going to have an offense. Um, and, you know, spring training stats don't mean anything, but this is what this offense can do if all these guys kind of play up at once. We'll get an opportunity here in a minute, too, to look at the infield a little bit more and talk about where these guys are going to fit into it. Uh, but a couple of, I don't know, maybe some concerning things here at spring training. It seems like Austin Romine isn't quite right, and it, we're not very confident that he's going to be ready to go as the opening day backup catcher. If that's the case, Jeremy, who you think's earned the backup spot? Is it P.J. Higgins, or is there someone else who's ready to take that job? Yeah, I think it's got to be Higgins. I don't think they're going to put Amaya up there right away. And I think, you know, Higgins has kind of been – it's kind of been a guy they've kind of been kind of grooming for a little bit. Uh, catchers take longer to develop. He's a little – you know, going to be a little bit older. But they've always kind of had him around being like the third catcher lately. You know, he, he was not planning on being in Iowa last year. So I think if Romine – I think he, he's had some knee issues. Is that what it is? Uh, if he's not ready, which obviously for a catcher, a knee is very important because they're – squatting all the time but if, I, I think pj higgins will be the guy that he's always gotten good reviews i think behind the plate um maybe i've you know we obviously don't have any numbers on him for his framing but he's gotten good reviews on that so i think he's the guy yeah piggins higgins a guy who's been around the organization for a, a long time he's drafted in the 12th round in 2015 and he's worked his way up since then uh, as jeremy said we don't always get the best uh the best look at the, the ins and outs of a catcher's defensive ability in the minors. But this is at least the second straight year, maybe even the third, the Cubs have brought him to minor league camp. And uh, for a catcher, an organization doesn't typically do that unless they believe uh, he might be able to play a role going forward. 
And given that uh, Jose Lobaton was sent to minor league camp today, it seems to me like if Romine is not able to go, Higgins is probably that guy. And, you know, good for him. I'm sure after being in the minor leagues for as long as he was, he would be thrilled not just to uh, make an opening day roster, but to be in the majors at all. You hope Romine gets right sooner versus later. But if not, it's good that the organization has someone they have confidence in uh, to fill that backup spot. Randall, something else in terms of the offense right now. Um, Chris Bryant, are you worried at all at the lack of power here in spring training? About 30 plate appearances. He has drawn six walks, but he hasn't launched the ball out of the ballpark yet. Too early to be worried about it? Or is this something that maybe you should be concerned about? You know, the truth, as it so often does, I think is somewhere in the middle. We say week in and week out, spring training stats don't matter. Um, if Bryant goes homerless throughout the spring and then homers twice on opening day, we're going to go, well, none of that mattered. Um, I'd say it's not so much I'm concerned he hasn't homered yet, as much as it is I'm worried that the wrist issue from last season might still be lingering. And we just this week learned that wrist issue was a lot more severe than was let on publicly. And that would be my biggest concern. It's not so much that he hasn't homered, but maybe the why he hasn't homered. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that wrist injury here in a minute. Um, but I'm with you, too. Again, not going to be too worried about Bryant. Let's just make sure he's ready to go for opening day, and hopefully he can take it from there. One other interesting story that popped up, uh, Tony Andraki had the report today. Apparently, Adbert says that Jay Carrietta has helped him change the grip on his curveball this spring training. And, and with that, he's got a lot more confidence throwing it for strikes, something that he's been able to tweak over the last week, week and a half or so. Jeremy, that's like as good of a case scenario as you could get. You bring a veteran back, a guy who's been at the top of the game in terms of starting pitching in baseball. If he could rub off a little bit on a guy like Adbert, maybe that's what he'll need to solidify himself as a big league starter well yeah last year you, if you remember correctly I think he came up and he struggled a little bit and then he went back down to the um to South Bend to the alternate camp alternate base I guess um and then I, I, I he did some tweaks uh there as well he did some in-season tweaks and I I, I want to say he developed a slider a little bit more so and then he came back up through that a little more that breaking ball a little bit more and, and it was successful for him so he seems like a guy who's able to kind of change a little bit on the fly, develop, you know, and he, he's been very close, obviously, with Jake. Uh, this spring training, there's been a lot of photos and pictures of them together, working together, sharing grips, Jake watching his mound, uh, you know, mound time, and uh, and, and the vice versa. So, Adbert, it's nice to see them pick the brain, the young guys pick the brain, the older guys, uh, Jake's obviously been around for a while, very successful, still probably knows a lot, even if the stuff isn't quite there. So, you, you know, that's good for Advert. Yeah. Yeah. Advert though. The one thing you hear the organization continually rave about is his, is his work ethic. Um, his major league debut season, I want to say 2019, um, he was seen in the dugout writing in a notebook uh, during and after an outing. We know he's a, a very cerebral individual. He takes notes. Uh, he uh, take, takes notes in what he does. He refers back to those notes. He does everything he can to learn. And as you said, to have Arietta in there to kind of be this, this second pitching coach to him, that can only help him. I, I don't think there's any way that turns out to be a negative for him, even if it's just kind of picking Arietta's brain. And we've talked about it previously. Um, and, you know, Adbert is a guy that this team could potentially be relying on for quite a bit this season. And to have a, a veteran like Arietta there helping him and not just kind of talking to him uh, during an outing, but to 
actually help him change his pitches physically, that's, that's a huge boost for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and interesting stuff there. I mean, I think Adbert is as important as anybody to the success of this team this year. I mean, we, we've talked at length, starting pitching will continue to be the question mark. And even though we've seen some promising things here in spring training, in general, starting pitching is going to be really important this year as guys are building up that arm load from the fractured season we had last year. So you're going to need extra starters. Adbert is going to be a key arm in this Cubs rotation uh, beyond even just the first five guys that are out there starting games for him so hopefully he's figuring it out I mean it's time even earlier the point about Dylan Maples in the bullpen it's time for him to either be a pitcher or not and these are the types of things that we're going to get to see play out and uh, we'll see but it's kind of cool seeing the old guy the veteran working with the young guy and sort of passing off that wisdom I like seeing that stuff and it, it makes for some interesting images throughout spring training as well and I think that that's part of the fun as well but let's talk about the infield a little bit. We're kind of going position by position. The infield has some pretty compelling storylines at this point in time. Um, I think it's safe to say there are a couple of locks, guys that we know are going to make this team. And before we get into that, do we all think just sort of the three of us that six infielders is the way the Cubs are going to go this year? And we can kind of start with that. Randall, you're nodding. Jeremy, Jeremy never really nods when I talk to him, so he's sort of I, I was, I was nodding. I was nodding. I was doing a, a nod. delayed nod. A delayed it was delayed. Nod I was nodding all time. It wasn't. It wasn't like a big old head nod. But Jeremy I was doing a nod dramatically off into the middle distance. That's how, that's how we know he's listening. No, I, I no, I, I do. I agree with you. I, you know, with six infielders. Yeah. So I, six I, infielders. The four locks would be Chris Bryant, of course, the veteran at third, Javi Baez, who will primarily start at short. Anthony Rizzo over at first, and then David Bowie on that multi-year deal, a, a league team-friendly contract, rather, and a guy who's been in the league now for a couple of years. That at least two spots left, and really three guys for those two spots. Nico Horner, Eric Sogard, Ildemaro Vargas. Randall, at this point in time, has Nico earned a spot on this team? I think he's had a good enough spring showing off the work he's done this offseason that I do think he has earned a spot. And I think especially with the AAA season not starting until later and uh, the alternate training site being a thing until that happens, I just don't think there's anything for Nico starting the season uh, playing, you know, alternate training site games. Um, so, yeah, I think he's I think he's earned that spot. And for my money, I think he's your starter at second base. I think he's got a higher ceiling than Bodie or Vargas and a, a way higher ceiling than Sogard. Um, I think he's earned that starting spot at second base. And if he goes through the first month and struggles again, maybe you find a way to make a switch. Um, but yeah, N Nico is a lock on the roster as far as I'm concerned. Jeremy, I agree with Rand Yeah, I agree yeah, with Randall. I was going to say, has Nico uh, earned his spot on the team? Yeah, I agree with Randall. Uh, you know, I, I, I think even more so because there's things that, as he mentioned, um, that are not out of Nico's control and everybody's control, really, that are going to play into it. The fact that uh, the AAA season doesn't start for a month, I think pretty much guarantees that he's going to be on the roster. Uh, I don't think he's, they're going to have him sitting around for a month, just, you know, hitting somewhere. But uh, so I, I think he'll be on there. Uh, it's interesting. It's going to be an interesting battle to see who, who really uh, takes over at second base, you know, but uh, I, I, he's obvious. I think he's the best defensive option of any of them. Um, I don't know if we want to go forward, with the second base uh, talk, but I'll, I'll go a little bit where I, I, I like Bodie. I, I, I think that um, he hits the ball hard and he probably hits the ball, maybe even the hardest of anybody on the team. And he just needs to get the ball in the air. So I've always been a big David Bodie fan. He's not 
um, the best defender, but he's solid enough. Uh, he had some struggles, you know, over on the left side, but on the right side, I think he can make it work. So uh, if Nico falters, I think, you know, I'm, I'm okay with Bodie. I think having each of them, I, I one of them, I think could really take control of it. Um, but I like having Bodie cause he hits the ball hard. Uh, Nico's obviously a different type of guy than the rest of the team has is so, you know, he could put the ball in play in different uh, ways. He likes to shoot the ball to the right side a lot. So, you know, we'll see, but I think it's pretty much a guarantee that Nico's on the roster on opening day. So who's left then? Sogard, Vargas, who lands mm-hmm. number six? It's Vargas for me. Um, I think he's a little more versatile. <laughs> I think you can trust him a little more at third and at, and at uh, short, even if need be. And Vargas does some interesting things offensively. He's got pretty decent minor league numbers offensively. He's never shown it in the majors in a, a, a little bit of a small sample size. Sogard, he just does not do a whole lot for me on this roster. If he's willing to uh, start the season at the alternate training site and then play at Iowa in case anybody gets hurt, that's fine. He's an, he's an okay injury replacement. For my money, I think Nico needs to be your starter at second base. I think Bodie and Vargas can rotate in there and kind of play as utility infielders as need be. And Sogard can be your injury insurance at the ATS and at Iowa. And yeah, I, I don't think Eric Sogard should be taking a roster spot for the Cubs on opening day unless somebody gets hurt. I'm shocked to hear you say that, yeah, Randall. Yeah, I'm shocked, but I'm going to disagree with Randall. I think uh, Sogard is the guy. I think he gives you something. I mean, Vargas has his versatility a little bit, you know, had some options. They tried to put him in the outfield, although he's had some issues in the outfield. He hasn't really played a lot of outfield, but they tried it. they've tried him out there. But Sogard, you know, he's left-handed, which is something that – you know, it's a good option to have at second base. You can platoon him. And I think he can fit well at Wrigley Field. I think he, his ability to hit the ball in the air, uh, it's not super deep, you know, to right field down the line. Or, you know, it's the deepest down the line. But, like, it's uh, – when, when you move out a little bit, it's not super deep. And I, I think it just – his swing fits well there. And so I think that, you know, Sogar, I think he gives you something, and I think he's going to be the guy to, get, uh, to make the team. I think he – you know, left-handed bat. What's interesting, too, is that of those locks we have, Bryant, Baez, Rizzo, all going into their last year contract here with the team. So these are guys that have been a part of a World Series championship. They've been a part of multiple playoff teams. They've got multiple years ahead of them still in the league. And, and Randall, we just don't know how many of them are even going to be on the team when we get to next year. You know, it, it is a sobering thought. We The last couple off seasons, we've seems like we've grappled daily with the notion of, is this Bryant's maybe last day as a Cub? Is this Contreras' last day as a Cub? And that hasn't come to pass yet, but where trades are kind of ethereal sometimes and, you know, never really come to pass a lot of the time, free agency is uh, you versus time. And it's, it's a sobering thought to think that they're probably not going to extend all three of those hitters. It's unlikely you're going to extend Rizzo, Baez, and Bryant all in the course of uh, one spring training here or uh, resign them as free agents next winter. And that, that's an unfortunate thought because these, these three players have been the cornerstones of some of the most successful Cubs baseball any of us have seen in our lifetime. And I can't imagine the team without any of the three. And it's possible, if not particularly likely, that none of them will be on the team next year. I tend to, I tend to think they'll extend at least one and possibly two of them, but that is the unfortunate reality of players sometimes. And uh, I hope they bring back all three, but the, the reality is they probably won't bring back all three. 
Yeah, I agree with you. It's it could be a little sad this year uh, seeing these three guys play out their uh, final year on the Cubs. Hopefully, the Cubs get off to a hot hot start, make those decisions a little bit more difficult. Whether or not they have to trade them in midseason, um, I think Rizzo will be back. You know, I, I think they'll actually get an extension done by the end of spring training, so he probably won't be a factor for talking about midseason trades. We'll see what happens with Baez. I know last year they thought they were going to get something done, then COVID hit. This year they're talking. Um, but you know, and Bias has said, and he's willing to talk, like he's not putting a deadline on things. They want to talk in the season. He's willing to talk. I, I, I personally, I don't know if I like that necessarily. Cause I want him focused on hitting and not other things, but if he's willing to talk, that's fine. So I actually do think that Bias and Rizzo will stick around the third one, Bryant, you know, Brian always talks like he loves Chicago. So I, I, hopefully it's, I think it's really – I mean, I, I think he's going to want to get paid. I think he's going to want fair value for what he is. I don't think he's going to take something at discount or something. But it's up to, like, Ricketts to be like, you know, we need to keep this guy around, and hopefully they do that. I hope – you know, if he struggles a bit, I could see them, you know, letting him go. Maybe they don't think he's – after last year, this year, if he's struggling. But – and if he plays great, maybe he wants to go because he's going to get paid. So it's kind of a catch-22 there. But – I really think that, you know, it's up to management to, to keep him around. So hopefully they can actually work something out, but that's probably unlikely. Catch-22 is actually Hayward's nickname, I'm told. Um, of those three wow. players, I Randall think Rizzo, info. Rizzo and Baez are definitely one, two, on most likely to sign an extension. Bryant, I think if he sticks around, and again, I hope he does, he has talked about being perfectly willing to talk to the Cubs. I think they resign, re-sign him as a free agent to a long-term deal next winter. I don't think they extend him in season. Um, but I agree, Rizzo is probably the most likely to be extended and Baez is a, a close second. Bryant is uh, third with a pretty decent gap between number two and three there. Yeah, and Anthony expressed some optimism earlier in spring training that an extension was likely to happen. He sort of put a soft deadline on opening day as that time to hopefully get it worked out by. Um, but with Bryant, you know, what's interesting is he hasn't been right the last couple of years. And it was what we have learned this week is that he was dealing with more serious injuries than we knew. Randall, it was what a ligament and wrist injury that really kind of held him back last year, a defensive effort. He rolled the wrist and he was never right, even though he ended up playing during the final stretch of the season. Yeah, we just learned this week uh, of the severity of the, the injury that Chris Bryant suffered in 2020. Uh, courtesy of uh, Evan Altman, the editor-in-chief of Cubs Insider blog, he wrote this week that Bryant actually suffered an impact fracture in his left wrist and two torn ligaments in his left ring finger. And that is not good at all, to, to state the obvious here, especially as a hitter like Bryant, who's so mechanical with uh, launch angle and his swing for any hitter, but to, to have your wrist and your finger uh, that injured that's going to do bad things to your offense. And we saw it, it does. And I think that brings us to a, a larger point. It seems like the last four seasons or so, you've had a lot of guys who have tried to play through injuries like that. And it has predictably not gone well. Bryant's quotes um, to the media this week, he said he's played through a lot of things that were bothering him because he wanted to play. He wanted to be on the field. He wanted to help the team. He wanted to compete good or bad. And he himself admits, I could have spoken up a little more and said, hey, I'm not feeling really good. Maybe if I had done that, I might have set myself up better down the road. And there are two, two examples of this that immediately come to mind. 2017, Ben Zobrist dealt with a season-long wrist injury 
that really sapped his ability to hit particularly effectively. And sure enough, he put up an OPS plus of 79. That's 21% below league average in only 128 games in 2017. And similarly, in 2019, Javier Baez suffered a heel injury, making a play on the infield early in the season. He was hitting particularly well up until that point, and his offense just kind of spiraled downward after that. Three very notable examples now of Cubs players who suffered injuries that really sapped their ability. And instead of deciding to sit and let it heal, or instead of the training staff telling them to sit and let it heal, they instead chose to try and play through it. And it it did not help any of the three. And that's across two different managers and at least two different uh, training staffs now. Yeah. Well, last year was a 60 game season. So I think Chris, you know, and he's definitely, you know, he's free agent as we've talked about. So he's not going to have so many games left. So I, I don't blame Chris for wanting to get out there in a 60 game season for wanting to play as much as he can. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a sprint, not a marathon there. So that one I can kind of understand, like you're going to play through that. Um, you know, I, I imagine it's pretty common for guys to play through things. Obviously you want them to get healthy and you know, you're trying to win. So it's tough balance, you know, because who are your replacements, right? For if you're getting a guy out, the question is whether or not this guy, had whatever injury he has is worth it uh, as, as opposed to, you know, a backup. But, uh, you know, you make some interesting points there, Randall, about guys playing through pain. Um, Javi, yeah, he had that heel and he always kind of limps a little bit around. So it's hard to really know when he's 100% healthy. Um, and Ben, you know, came back strong in 2018 after that week, 2017, but, uh, I, you want guys to, to ask out if they're not feeling well, but it's tough. That's not the, they're not going to do that. They're baseball players. They want to play baseball. They want to, and as Chris says, they're want to get paid. So they're going to go out there and try to perform. And maybe that's short-sighted to, for them and they, they're not really thinking long-term, but, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. Well, Bryant's certainly going to be worth watching uh, this year, and, and we hope he can get back to health. His first three years in the league, sitting between five and seven and a half war, he had the MVP season back in 2016, was a member of the All-Star team back in 2019, had a big year there as well with 31 home runs, but didn't quite look right last year. At least we got a little bit more clarity, Randall, on what was wrong with him. And if he's healthy, you know there's a big-time player in there, and that's going to be key for the Cubs this year. They do not have the depth offensively that they're going to be able to get away with with long-term injuries for the key players offensively. So Bryant's health is as important as anything if this team is going to be worth watching when we get into September. Definitely. The Cubs are going to need all their guys to be healthy and to hit. Otherwise, it's not going to be a great year. Yeah, yeah. The margin for error, so to speak, is very, very small. small. Um, But we're going to shift gears here. we got a very special guest joining us now for the second half of this show. A great baseball fan, a longtime Lansing Lugnuts season ticket holder, Greg from Lansing, Michigan. How are you doing tonight, Greg? Oh, Ronan, I'm doing just fine. How are you? We're good. We're good. We're happy to have you. Um, We were saying earlier, we were talking college basketball for a minute. What happened to Sparty last night? It was looking good until halftime, and then it all fell apart. Uh, story of the season, man. That's about how it's all gone all year round. Get a lead, blow it, try to come back, make it dramatic, and then fall apart at the end. That game blew up uh, faster than uh, Izzo's temper. Oh, was, everything was just going wrong. But that's been the season. Uh, a couple of other Big Ten teams, as we've watched today, have also struggled mightily. Uh, perhaps the league isn't as good as we thought, or 
that maybe the top is very good and the rest of the league is not. Well, we're going to have fun watching it play out here over the next couple of weeks. I was saying earlier, too, it was great to see Purdue lose. At least I had that going for me today as a Hoosier. Um, We do want to talk about some new minor league baseball rules with you, get your thoughts on that. But you volunteered to participate in some trivia. So I did some homework last night, and I put together a couple of questions that I think is particularly good. And um, I'm looking forward to kind of working through this with with all three of you guys here. Um, The theme for trivia today is we're going dancing. And I'm not talking about me doing a jig on Wednesday for St. Patrick's Day, but we're talking about March Madness. And I've got some tie-ins here to Major League Baseball with March Madness. And this very first question is sort of a free-for-all. Um, I want you all to feel like you can throw out names or contribute to the pot here. Um, but I was able to confirm that there have been at least 10 players in Major League Baseball history who also participated in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Who all can we name of the 10 who have appeared? Lofton. Hold, on, Lofton. hold on, Randall. Let me get the question out. Randall, are you Googling over there? Name? <laughs> who all can we name here in terms of the 10 players who have played in Major League Baseball and the NCAA tournament? So, Kenny Lofton, yes. Totally I think that's right. right. That yeah, one. Kenny Lofton. Uh, has, did Dave Winfield play in the NCAA tournament? Dave Winfield did play in the NCAA tournament. Interesting thing with that, too, the Major League Hall of Famer was at the University of Minnesota. They won the Big Ten Championship back in 1972. And Kern, I wanted to ask you about this, too. I, I, I introduced you as Greg. I knew I was going to call you Kern. I can't help it. I'm probably going to call you Kern from here on out. Um, do you know anything about that 1972 championship? There was a nasty brawl between Minnesota and Ohio State. That. I, I know nothing about it. It's Zero. on YouTube. You can watch it. I was literally just about to mention there was a big time brawl <laughs> between. It probably ran their coach, Bill Musselman, who's the father of Eric Musselman in Arkansas, out of Minnesota, because that was a nasty brawl. <laughs> and actually, I read too that the head coach of Ohio State it forced him to leave the sport early. He was disenfranchised by the response to the University of Minnesota, the fight that happened in that game, and kind of the lack of punishment. They went on to win the Big Ten championship and um, appear in the tournament back in 72. So yes, we've got two though. Kenny Lofton, who played for about everybody in Major League Baseball. He was at the University of Arizona. The backup point guard to Steve Kerr had the final four appearance in 88 and a sweet 16 appearance the next year in 1989. So we've got two, there were 10 total any other names that we could think of of major leaguers who've played in the NCAA tournament? I'm trying to think of names. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to think of football players. For, uh, I was some just going to say the same thing. Basketball I, was, I was just thinking that Julius Peppers. formerly. Yeah. Oh, available. Julius Peppers. That's a good one. But he's obviously not playing baseball. What am I no, he is not a baseball uh, okay. player. Okay, so I have a guess. I mean, um, I mean, there's Charlie Ward for football, right? I mean, he, he was a... Uh, you know, he player, played yeah. a basketball and football yeah. player. Ronan, so, yeah, Ronan, is there any chance we could change the question NFL players to have played? In <laughs> I have a couple guesses. Time? I have a couple. Did uh, well, one Mark Hendrickson played in the NBA and in Major League Baseball. Did he play in, in the NCAA tournament? I don't know. I I did not see that name, and so I was not pulling Mark this Hendrickson. from a couple of different places. Well, I, one, he's two. one guy I know. He played in both sports. Um, another one I don't know if he ever made Major League Baseball, and I'm not even sure if he played in the NCAA tournament. What about Andrew Brackman? For the Yankees. No, because no, he went to North Carolina State. Um, I'll say, but... Kern, there's a name that I think you should know. And Amir Garrison oh, didn't do it. Did Amir Garrison? Detroit Garrett... Tigers t- fan. Oh, gosh. So oh. There should be a, there's a Detroit Tiger in there. I, there I have a to big say big-time Detroit Tiger in there. My um, baseball 
like where I really know baseball is from like the years that I've been like alive or like that I've actually been watching baseball. But if you want to tell, ask me about, tell me about the Tigers of the 1960s, man. Good luck. I know nothing. Did Kirk Gibson do it? No, Kirk Gibson was a, he was a football football. player. I don't know if he played basketball. I know he He, played football. He, I don't think he was on the list. No. Well, uh, the name I was thinking with the Tigers that I thought you'd get is yeah. the head of the Baseball Players Association, Tony Clark. Oh, Tony, Tony Clark. Clark. Wow. No, no, Jeremy, no, wrong not there. Wrong. Tony Off Clark, the... hold on. Tony Clark started his college basketball career at the University of Arizona, where he attended the 1990 college basketball NCAA tournament. He then transferred to San Diego State, where for two years he went on to be a leading scorer, but he did not get to the NCAA tournament But San Diego State. I'm just happy I was right on he went to San Diego State, because when you said I was wrong, I was like, oh, no, did I get that really wrong? But he did go to San Diego State. I was just wrong on he didn't play in the tournament there. You know, Um, the Tigers had a pretty good reputation of having, like, like with um, Sean Casey and then Tony Clark of, like, robotic first baseman that probably i'm i to be honest with you i'm shocked that tony clark ever played basketball he's like six, I, eight. I i know that but man that dude was he just felt like a robot like he had cement in his shoes all the time see like it's so hard like frank thomas played football i'm just thinking of guys that played football <laughs> trying to think of multi-sport athletes um you know i could think of one for ray joe borchard and josh fields but more football players bo jackson never played no, he uh, played basketball, basketball, did he? Yeah, probably uh. probably could have if he had wanted to, but oh, yeah. yeah. I, right. I would say any other guesses of of major leaguers? There's two that I think are realistic, maybe three, and then there's a couple going back to the 50s and 60s that I wasn't expecting. Amir Garrett didn't get. do it. You heard my aunt ask of Amir Garrett at St. No John's. Amir Garrett. They didn't get in there, I and mean, they haven't been good in a long time, so it doesn't surprise me. Um. Who played basketball? Yeah, Kenny Kenny Lofton was my one contribution to this particular set of answers, I think. And I think that was the uh, a good one because he was one of two players who reached the final four. There was another player, a pitcher who um, actually won a national championship. How about Sandy Koufax? No, Sandy Koufax. At Cincinnati, I think he played basketball at Cincinnati. Um, um, the player that I was mentioning there, who went to the two, uh, went to a Final Four, actually won a national championship, was with NC State in 1974, won a World Series with the Baltimore Orioles in 1983. And I'll give you one more hint: he went to the same high school as Kenny Lofton, East Chicago Washington High. Oh, I actually knew that. I knew that that East Chicago had two Final Fours and two World Series winners, and I don't know who the second guy was. I actually knew that little stat now that you mention it. Um, Tim Stoddard. Tim Stoddard. Yeah, I mean, I would I never, never pull that out. Never would have gotten I, that. I, 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 I remember that Kenny Lofton, like factoid, that he went to the same. The two guys have done this, and they went to the same high school. Well, let me work through the rest of the list here because I don't think you guys are going to get it, especially when we get back in to the 50s and 60s. But this was the full list. I pulled it from a few different places. Okay, so we mentioned Dave Winfield, Kenny Lofton, Tim Stoddard, who won that national championship with NC State and then the World Series with the Orioles. Randy Wynn, the former San Francisco Giant, 1993. He was in Santa Clara and they upset Arizona, a 15-2 upset. He would have been teammates with Steve Nash those Ohio state fans out there that are hurting at uh, 15 2 upset right now um, can maybe think back to Randy Wynn back in 93. We mentioned Tony Clark. 
there was Danny Ainge and an interesting angle with that. Oh yeah, oh Danny Ainge, that one I should have known. He actually played, yep. yeah, with the Blue Danny Jays. Danny Ainge was with the Toronto Blue Jays while he was playing for BYU. He was a uh, college basketball player and a baseball player, and he led the Cougars to the NCAA back in 1979. A couple other names here to work through: Cotton Nash, just 13 major league games. Um, he actually appeared for the Chicago White Sox, and the, probably the most important thing that he did in baseball, he made the final three putouts. Oh, I have one more guess. Can I get another guess? Sure. Dave DeBusher? Did he he play in the NBA? Yes. Dave De- yep. When you said the White Sox, that popped in my head. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get to him in just a second here, too. But Cotton Nash made the final three putouts in a no-hitter, 1967 Joe Horlin for the Chicago White Sox. So pretty interesting for him. Just 13 games in the majors. He was a big-time player at the University of Kentucky. 21 30-point games, two NCAA appearances in his time at Kentucky. You mentioned DeBusher. Yeah, the former White Sox reliever. Um, Kern, I thought maybe this would resonate with you. Back in the wee days of 1962-1963, he took the University of Detroit Titans to the 1962 NCAA tournament and then went on to a lengthy NBA career. Very successful there, a couple of championships. His number Jeremy is retired by one team in the NBA. Do you know what team that is? Pistons or the Knicks? New York Knicks. Knicks, yeah. New York Knicks, yeah. And then the last three names I could grab here: Steve Hamilton, who actually had a 12-year major league career, spent time with both the Cubs and the White Sox. He took Moorhead State to the NCAA tournament in the mid-50s. Ron Reed had 19 seasons in the majors. He also um, went to the NCAA tournament with Notre Dame in the 1960s. A factoid on Ron Reed, he was the winning pitcher when Hank Aaron broke the home run record. And then the last one, no relation here, Randall, Dick Ricketts. Back in 1959 with the St. Louis Cardinals, he took Duquesne University to the NCAA tournament. His brother, Dave Ricketts, won a World Series with the Cardinals, won another pennant with the Cardinals, and was on an NIT team in 1955 with Duquesne. So I did some work. I found 10 definite major leaguers who ended up playing in the NCAA tournament. I thought for sure Kenny Lofton would be the obvious one just with our age range and how good he was on the court. But some interesting names in there, too. I didn't really think of Randy Wynn as a college basketball player, for example. I I always thought of him as a giant. Backwards, really, because I was thinking more on baseball players who played basketball, but Ainge have, and, you know, being a debusher, being a basketball player who played baseball, I wasn't really thinking about, but I actually looked up Danny Ainge the other day, not to rub some salt in the wounds because I was looking up him in regards to Brad Stevens, possibly leaving the Celtics to go to Indiana. I was trying to, so I just started looking up Danny Ainge and, and I knew about it previously, but then I looked up his stats for the Blue Jays. So this is literally within the last week. So I'm really mad at myself for not getting Danny Ainge. Ronan, that's some, some good trivia. Well, researched. it was really good. Uh, Question number two. This one's also good. And this is a two-part question. Part one goes to Jeremy. Part two goes to our guest in Lansing. And you'll be able to pick up where we're going with this. Um, So, Jeremy, in terms of University of Illinois baseball players, so University of Illinois baseball players that have matriculated to the major leagues in the long history of Illinois baseball, they have produced 72 major leaguers, and they've had 119 players drafted. And that was through the 2020 season. There are currently two active major leaguers that are former Illini. Who are they? Well, Tanner Rourke. Yep. There's two active former. There are former two Illini? active former Illini, Tanner Roark and another. 
who who got called up recently? Um, because Tyler J never made it. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, wow, I'm blanking on uh, the pitcher for the Orioles' name who was drafted in the first. Oh, I know who it's. Um, for the Mariners, Joey Gerber. Joey Gerber, right on the money. He so, got called up at the end of last year. Really, Fisher. Two for two, yeah. got called up last year. He's an active player, was on a major league roster, so that works. Um, here's a question for you. I'm not asking you to name them all. Of course, this is a pretty big wild card. How many former Illini have played for the Chicago Cubs? Well, the first one off the top of my head is Ken Holtzman. For great sure. pitcher. Nine years uh, as a Cub, Ken. Yeah, two no-hitters, ended up winning a couple World Series with the A's. Um, uh, so other ones... I don't know if he played for the Cubs, but Lou Boudreau was the longtime, uh, you know, WGN uh, color analyst. So uh, before uh, Steve Stone. So I'm not sure if he ever actually played for the Cubs. Um, I'm trying to think of anybody recently. Scott Spezio never played for the Cubs. Uh, um, the catcher for Darren Fletcher never played for the Cubs. Uh, to be honest with you, nobody really too recent. There was a guy yeah, in 94. Don Paul, but I'm just kind of curious if you could mm. ballpark maybe how many Cubs the Illini have produced over the years. I'll guess. I'll just pull a random number. I'll, I'll say 10. Very close. 11. Ooh. And uh, interesting, a lot of them in the first half, the early half of the 1900s. That makes sense. Um, I, there are a couple guys that have been around. Carl Lundgren. How many Cubs can say this? Carl Lundgren, who uh, played for the Cubs, was also a former Illini, appeared in three World Series as a Chicago Cub. That list is very short. <laughs> yes, that's a short list. That's a turn of the century list or like in the 1930s. Um, yeah, but it makes sense that, you know, obviously they probably scouted locally 40, 50 years or the first 40, 50 years of the century. So it makes more sense. That they a would fun one here then for you, Jeremy. This is a tip of the cap to our buddy Ray. How many Illini have played for the White Sox? How many Illini played for the White Sox? I'll say like five. I don't even know Illini have played for the White Sox. So it's also 11. And also you 11. mentioned Scott Spezio, who of Did course. Did Spezio play for the White Sox? For, no, no, no. Oh. Uh, Scott Spezio, who played for the St. Louis Cardinals, was right. also an Illini. His dad, Ed Spezio, was an Illini and a Chicago White Sox. So yeah, that was the local connection there. Um, Kern, I wanted to turn this on to you a little bit. You're a proud Michigan State baseball fan. You're a great Detroit Tigers fan. Sparty has produced 39 major leaguers. They've had 133 players drafted. There is one current active major leaguer who played for Michigan State. Do you know who that is? Wow, one current active major leaguer. I knew that this is where you were going with this. I'm, I'm thinking about um, recent guys, and I'm going to draw a blank. I thought you were going to be like historical. I was going to tell you about like Mark Mulder and Kurt Gibson, absolutely, and uh, you know Steve Garvey and a couple of those. Uh, Earl Morrill from way back. Um, you know, he won a, a Super Bowl and played baseball for Michigan State. Um, gosh, though a current I'm thinking about some recent guys and, you know, the, the one that in your Cubs universe that comes up to the top of my mind, but I don't think he made it to the majors in the last two years, especially not last year was Dakota Mex, right? He was playing triple yeah. a, um, but he, I don't think he ever made it to the major league roster quite yet. Um, oh, gosh. I don't, I don't have, who is it? 
I, I was going to give you a hint, but I don't know that it's going to help. Sure. But it's a, a Mariners hint. pitcher. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I should, but I, <laughs> I, I don't know who it is. Who is it? Anthony Masevich. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to pull that one off the top of my head, but I definitely know the name and, and actually put it together. Yeah. You started to answer my second question to you as yeah. you were kind of working through that first one. So as a Detroit Tigers fan, I wanted to ask you how many MSU Spartans have played for the Detroit Tigers? Would you guess? Well, I know of one for certain. Um, he was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know what? I just, a just a pull out of the hat, kind of similar to what, uh, Jeremy was thinking, you know what, but uh, having far fewer players that have never made it to the majors, uh, I'm going to go with three. Okay, good guess there. It was eight. Um, obviously, okay. the top of the line there, of course, being Kirk Gibson, had two stints with the Tigers, 79 yeah. to 87, and then at the end of his career, 93 to 95. The only other sort of Cubs connection that I found looking into this was a gentleman by the name of Bob Anderson. He was a staple of the late 50s, 19 Cubs, 1957 to 1962. He was then a Tiger in 1963. So some good stuff there. Just wanted to see Sparty in the alignment and I kind of how they lined up with our major league teams of choice. And then I've got one last trivia question. This is a free reign for all of you. And okay. um, this segues into kind of our next segment as well. But the Lansing Lugnuts, which is your team, Greg, there in yes. uh, Lansing, Michigan. It is a team that is sort of woven into the heart of Cubs fans of a certain age. They were a Cubs minor league affiliate from 1999 through 2004. So with that all in mind, who was the first player in Lansing Lugnuts history to hit a cycle. <laughs> this is definitely one that I should know. Um, and I don't at all. Um, I'm going to have to, you know, catch up on some of my trivia. My, my, my real knowledge, as many people would expect, is like current stuff. And I'm uh, currently amazed at the total number of Toronto uh, Blue Jays um, that are obviously former Lansing Lugnuts, especially having been a low A team. Um, you typically don't get that many um, major leaguers that kind of come through. Um, but, you know, if I want to just throw somebody out there, gosh, uh, Cub, uh, is it, a, are you saying former Cub or they were a Cub, but they hit for the cycle? Or are you just saying first Lansing Lugnut player ever to hit for the cycle? It happens to be both. The first player to club a okay. cycle for the Lugnuts yeah. happened to be a Cubs prospect. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, Corey Patterson. Okay. Randall, what do you think? Uh, first Lansing lug nuts player to, as a Cubs prospect to a fit for the cycle, Corey Patterson's a good guess. I don't want to step on, uh, the Corey Patterson guess. I'm going to say Brian DePyrick. Wow. Jeremy, what do you think? Yeah, I, 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 Corey Patterson was probably the first one that came into my mind, but I'm, I'm also going to go like Randall and guess something different just to guess something different. Um, I'm going to say David Kelton. Great guesses all the way around. I love the uh, diversity of names being thrown out here. But Greg, you got this one. The former first-round draft pick of the Cubs, Corey yeah. Patterson, back in 1999, clubbed the first cycle in Lansing Lugnuck's history. And, and with that in mind, uh, Greg, tell us a little bit about your fandom there. You know, you, you happen to be sort of in the backyard of the ballpark. Great ballpark there. Um, what do the lug nuts mean to you? You certainly get out to a lot of games. Sure. So I think the the 
things that are probably most important about the lug nuts uh, in particular, um, you know, is accessibility to the stadium, right? It, you know, living, living very close to it, um, you know, and, you know, reasonable prices to be able to get out and go to a game, um, you know, makes the, the other factor. Um, I would say though, uh, having grown up in the area, uh, you know, I went to, you know, uh, 1996 went to a number of games, as a, as a, uh, uh, you know, a, a kind of a kid growing up uh, and, and was a baseball fan and played baseball at the time. So I think that's what that part means. Now, if I were to be living somewhere else um, and there was also a minor league team that I could get to within short call and it didn't cost all that much, I would be doing the same thing. Um, you know, that it happens to be my hometown. That's great and good. But, you know, I, I think I like baseball is probably the tops for me. And then, you know, some of the, the locality probably, you know, that's the next thing that I enjoy and like about it. Um, the other thing that I, I think helps probably within, I would say, you know, recent years um, is the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, who the Legacy Lugnets are a former affiliate of, um, brought some uh, very good um, offensive talent through Lansing. Um, and I think that 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 made it certainly attractive. Uh, you know, we, we did, we, we got like uh, two thirds of a season out of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And Bo Bichette. So that was, you know, pretty exciting uh, times. I, I think the other thing that makes um, the lug nuts fun um, is the, well, they're now calling it the high A central. We'll see if maybe the Midwest league name sticks again, but all, but the surrounding area, the teams are also very close, right? So if I want to go on the road, I can go to Grand Rapids, Comstock Park there, and go see the West Michigan Whitecaps, and that's a 50-minute drive, right? And I can go to uh, Midland, Michigan, to Dow Diamond, and go see maybe the Lugnuts play there or whomever prospects come through. Uh, Midland, uh, the Great Lake Loons are with the Dodgers, and go up there and watch a baseball game too within the hour, right? So uh, having the – I think that proximity, you know, makes it pretty good. Um, I did travel to – for a birthday one year did do like a series with the lug nuts down at, uh, in Fort Wayne, uh, with the Fort Wayne tin caps, um, got a chance to see, uh, I, well, I did see Fernando Tatis play as a, um, as a tin cap. I can't recall if it was in, I, it was definitely, I do recall seeing him in Lansing. I can't remember if it was that year that he was also in, in Fort Wayne as well. So that was, I mean, we, I think we all knew that he was going to be big time. So he was somebody that you always, Kind of wanted to go out and, and check out. Um, and the other thing that I, I find to be relatively interesting kind of about the Midwest League is, and we've seen Major League Baseball say, oh, we want to put all these affiliates near their teams. But there are now, you know, within kind of like that immediacy here, Lansing is now with Oakland, right? They're a, a AL West team. The Loons have been, I think, essentially from their beginning with the, with the LA Dodgers, right? And a, an NL West team. Uh, and then the... Fort Wayne Wizards and Tin Caps. Now I think they've been with the Padres. It feels like almost like for their entirety. So you've got all these kind of West coast teams, uh, you know, in that lower high a kind of division, right. You know, now that have, you know, ties to the Midwest, which I, I, as somebody who also enjoys watching a lot of baseball, I can watch now the blue Jays you can't really see the tigers right now as a YouTube TV subscriber. We don't get Fox sports Detroit at the moment. Um, but the Tigers are going to be bad. So maybe who cares if we miss them or don't. Um, <laughs> so we get to watch the Blue Jays now on MLB.tv. But if I need a late game, 
I can go watch the A's, learn a lot about the A's system, those things. And so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to enjoy being able to have a little bit, probably more interest in being able to see, uh, have multiple games going on rather than, you know, just, you know, kind of keeping an eye on, on one or the other. And, you know, that, you know, I'll always be a Tigers fan. Don't get me wrong, but the Tigers have, you know, some time to go. And if they're not going to be accessible because of blackout rules uh, or other reasons, well, you know what, I'm not going to watch them and we'll, 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 we'll keep in touch with them through other means. And one of the other things that's uh, interesting too is in the Midwest League or the former Midwest League is the investment in the ballparks over the last 20 years or so has been a complete game changer. They've got a real nice one there in Lansing. Um, looking at it, I, I think of it as Thomas Cooley Law Stadium. I guess it's been renamed. It's Jackson Field now. Is that right? Yes, it is. It is Jackson Field. Uh, no new signage up. Um, I imagine that that'll be up. Uh, in oh, the, the Cooley Law School Stadium signage has come down. Um, but the uh, imagine the Jackson uh, Stadium or Jackson Field signage will probably go up. Now the field had been called and sponsored Jackson Field for quite a while. It was Jackson Field at Thomas M. Cooley Law School Stadium um, for 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 a bit of time. Uh, but Lansing, Michigan, uh, uh, conveniently called the uh, Midwest uh, capital of uh, insurance. We've got auto owners insurance. The accident fund um, <laughs> is also headquartered here. Uh, and then Jackson National, or they call them, they're just, they go by Jackson now, but Jackson National Life is also uh, right here in the immediate area uh, for all your insurance needs. So, um, yeah, that's, that would be, a, there's your one uh, random Lansing factoid, right? All those auto owners, as you see on the Big Ten Network all the time, so. It's got a cool location though there too in downtown Lansing. I mean, it's right in the middle of everything. And what's the what's the vibe in the community like though with the team? I mean, I imagine there's pride in that team being there in that ballpark and the efforts that they've done to pump some life into that downtown area too. Yeah, you know the obviously you know the Midwest you know hit hard for a number of different reasons, but on the former site of of actually where the stadium is at was uh, you know some adult bookstores and and things of that. It was. Um, red light district would be a stretch to say, <laughs> but it was definitely the, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it being, you know, uh, three or four blocks off of the Capitol when they were able to get the, you know, the money and the funding to come around and have a team there. It was certainly a, a, a welcome site. I think the one thing that's probably most interesting about the stadium actually is, and, um, that they, it's a little bit underground it's, it's built into the ground right so that they could fit it in an entire like a like a proper city block so they had to build it, it downwards so when you walk into the stadium which i think makes it actually very accessible for folks is you know there's there's it's it's a simple it's a simple walk in and then everything else is, is down below right so you could walk around now that it, it wasn't originally a 360 concourse it is now but you could walk around or or wheel around if you needed to the entire concourse without having to go up or down any which way through any of the entrances. So that, I think that makes it a nice thing. Uh, it's also a little bit bigger than most traditional, um, you know, class A style parks. Um, uh, and and it, it's a, it's a good 10,000 seats. Um, so we're going to have any physical distancing options this summer and those kinds of things. So they'll, they'll probably have a higher capacity there than, uh, percentage wise than, you know, perhaps a, a couple of other places would just simply because of how actually big the stadium itself is. Um, dimension wise, I find it to be very in interesting as well. I don't, myself, I don't really get into the, um, um, 
let's see the uh, the analytic stats for a minor league baseball team necessarily. Um, but uh, our our uh, Jesse Goldberg Schrossler, who is our um, uh, media relations and play by play guy, and and basically uh, MILB know it all. Um, you know, he, he definitely conveys that Lansing is certainly known as a hitter's ballpark because uh, it's big, right? There's a lot of gaps. Um, you might not be hitting home runs to center field because it's pretty deep out there and it's a, a fairly high wall. Um, but the opportunity for doubles and triples, and if you're, I mean, I've seen multiple in the park home runs uh, just because it's that big, right? And, and not because of any errors or anything like that. Just simply if you're fast enough and you can hit it out there, it's going to roll all the way to the wall and you can get around the bases pretty quick. Jesse's a great broadcaster too. One of the cool things he does every year are the the ballpark uh, recreations, like those old broadcasts from a hundred years ago when baseball announcers were not necessarily at the game and they were recreating those broadcasts. It's still something he does annually. And I think we're all eager to kind of hear that again this upcoming summer. Um, give our audience a sense of how many games per year, roughly, would you say you're out at seeing the lug nuts? To me, it feels like you're there damn near every night. <laughs> yeah, I would, over the last... Um... Well, obviously no games last year, but prior to that, I was kind of in the uh, 35 to 45 games a year type range. I, you know, my favorite days, and I was actually uh, uh, talking to a, a ticket rep today um, with the lug nuts about trying to figure out how, how to do this this year. Um, you know, I like, um, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday games, um, you know, cause I, I'm, I'm there for the baseball, right? Don't get me wrong. I love the promotions. I've participated in promotions. Um, but, um, you know, the probably the less people, the ballpark, the better for me, um, you know, to be completely honest, just because it's, it's it, you, you really get that opportunity to watch baseball. Right. And to either score the game or think about it in the ways that you want to. And, and you know, but I've seen some kind of incredible feats there as well. Um, probably my, you know, not, not necessarily a favorite memory, but something to put uh, in the in the Cubs book is. Um, I've seen uh, Ryan Sandberg when he was the, I believe he was the manager of the, uh, gosh, were they called the South Bend Cubs at the time? Um, he probably uh, Peoria, yeah, Peoria. yeah, or who, which, yeah, whoever their affiliate was at the time, um, he got ejected from a game for arguing a uh, uh, whether a a, um, a hit was a home run or a foul ball. It was very clearly <laughs> a home run, and the umpire had called it a foul ball. Um, and he, I mean, he went to far lengths. I mean, I, he threw things out of the dugout. Um, and that was a really, really, really cold day too. Oh, it was, the weather was awful. Um, he so he's probably, leave. yeah, I mean, he was definitely in the right there on that one. Um, but it was, um, I want to get that, warm. You know, right. Yeah, that, that, yeah, exactly. That great, was fun. Way, great way to get back into the clubhouse yeah. by the space get heater yes. a little early. Yes. And it was pretty early on in the game too. It might've been the second or third inning, yeah. but I'd say that I'd say the ball was probably fair by about six feet. Um, now granted it was higher than the foul pole. So I can yeah. certainly understand. Uh, and I had a very good view. I can certainly understand where the umpire, um, you know, wasn't able to make the right call. And, you know, it, it, those guys are learning too. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, your, your, tr your traditional class A umpire is a, a veteran, a, a 50 or 60 year old veteran out there. It's young, young guys who are young guys and girls who are trying to make the, make their way up the ranks. So, um, you know, it was, was uh, totally understood. And it was that, and I, I, the reason why I remember the day so well, cause it was cold. There wasn't any clouds in the sky. Lansing's kind of known as being a cloudy, a, a city that, that can be, uh, has a lot of cloudy days. Um, 
so that Ronan, I, I don't oh, know if I answered your question or I probably said too much, but I'd say that's kind of the general, the general gist of it. Um, I, I like to sit on the third base side, which is actually ends up being the visitor's side um, for two reasons. Um, number one, the stadium faces north. So from uh, the, the uh, you know, looking outwards from it, it, it does go north. Um, so your back is against for the summertime. You're not, you don't have to look into the sun, basically. If you're sitting on the first base side, you're, you're going to be looking in the sun for quite a while. Um, and then because I get to see the Lugnut players all the time, it would only make sense to have an opportunity to see all the prospects of all the other teams. So that's why I like to sit on the kind of on the visitor side um, and, and, and see – see what uh what everybody else brings to town kind of on a regular basis so we've well, yeah. spent a lot of time watching minor league baseball I was games. Say, I have. 40 game 40 games is a lot for because minor league season's not a full season <laughs> uh right yeah so they would do i think this year they're expecting or they're hope they're expecting to do about 60 games you know a personal goal of mine if there wasn't a pandemic um would be to see uh would, would be to go to 40 to, to try to go to 40 this year uh, for minor league baseball. I think this will roll into some of the new stuff now that major league baseball has kind of taken over um, is that Monday is a league wide off day. And Monday was one of my favorite days to go to the ballpark. I, I would refer commonly as full price Monday because they wouldn't do a ton of promotions on Monday, uh, but that was okay with me. Um, I could go to the game and then, you know, I, I a $8 beer at that point in time, wasn't really a big deal. I would, would gladly spend $8 on a beer or something like that. So, um, but so we're going to talk some rule changes, right? Yeah. Yeah. We've seen some major changes in minor league baseball. The majors has essentially absorbed the minors. Some teams were moved. Some teams were ostensibly eliminated. The whole minor leagues were basically restructured and major league baseball has full ownership there now. And with that comes new rule changes. So let me do a quick rundown on some of the new minor league rules for this year that we can kind of see how we all feel about it. Um, so we talked about this last time, slightly larger bases and a different surface to the bags in AAA, they're going to be a little bit bigger, which means the distance between bases is technically going to be a couple of inches smaller. That'll be something to keep an eye on. In all of AA this year, there will be a pretty big time rule change, a requirement that will enforce that all four infielders must have their cleats within the outer boundary of the infield dirt when the pitch is delivered. So basically with there, you're talking about a major limitation on shifting which is going to change the way that defensive alignments are going to play out. Um, let's start with that, though. Eh? That's a pretty big change. Other than being in fair territory, there's not a whole lot of requirements for where Major League Baseball players need to stand in terms of position players. This is a pretty big change, Greg. What, what do you think this is going to do to shifting and defensive placements in Minor League Baseball? So I've got a lot of, a lot of problems with this particular rule. I think the other ones I'm, I'm going to see in a, in a uh, far more favorable light. Um, the, in particular, um, because I think if we'll, we'll talk about stolen bases later here, but fundamentally changing the way and the positioning that players play, all this is, is a giant experiment. It's no longer about teaching people how to play baseball. Um, and I, from my perspective, I don't, I don't see this as being a, uh, a win for baseball in general. Uh, I think there are much better ways to um, to increase scoring in baseball or to incentivize other styles of play um, than eliminating the ability to do the shift. Um, now, I, I, if I believe the, the double-A rule um, 
doesn't necessarily say that you that you have to have two players on each side of second base. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying that you can't have anybody standing in the grass in the outfield, basically. Basically, um, right. So, uh, you know, that, that changes some things, but I do believe that they have written a bit in there that says perhaps in the second half of the AA season, they may eliminate the shift entirely. I think that that is a uh, poor way to incentivize or get people to have more hits because I don't think it's, I don't, I don't believe, and now Randall, perhaps, or, or the rest of the crew here, you guys may know a little bit more than I do, uh, if the shift actually eliminates um, uh, hits from players. I think what the shift does is it teaches you that the home run isn't the be-all, end-all hit in baseball. Like, let's learn how to hit again here and put the, and hit the ball to opposite field hit the ball where the shift isn't. And for the heck of it, man, let's learn to bunt a little bit again, right? Especially with some of these other um, stolen base rules or that the pitcher in, in high A is going to be required to step off of the rubber before throwing over, which should increase stolen bases. So if stolen bases are going to increase, should put more players in the scoring position, which in turn um, should mean in theory, more small ball, or as we like to say, and this will probably annoy Ronan, manufacturing runs. We might see some more gritty players, uh, you know, happen out there um, and, and, and plays be made. So I, to me, those are the things, and I think the changes that are that are actually more positive, right? That we, we're not seeing enough players right now stealing bases. We've de-incentivized stealing bases. Um, at the minor league level, um, on occasion, times happen where, you have a position player who has to catch or perhaps, you know, with injuries and things like that, catchers are often shuffled around minor league baseball pretty significantly. Now with less players playing in minor league baseball, I could see there being teams that are able, especially if you've got some speed on your team that are able to take advantage of and kind of go against, I think the spirit of the rule where you're going to see a lot more stolen bases happen, probably a lot more runs get scored. I think in minor league baseball, um, especially, you know, balls get thrown in the outfield way more often than they do in, in majors. And so you're going to see more stolen bases happen. You're going to see more guys end up on third base going kind of first to third, I think, than potentially is, you know, maybe anticipated. Um, but I, you know, I, I think this is this, these, some of the, the stolen base rules, um, or I should say what's going to try to incentivize stolen bases and probably a little bit more bunning and sacrificing, I think would actually be good for for major league baseball um i think that there may be um some long innings in minor league baseball though because of it yeah i i i um for me personally with the shifting rule uh that's going to occur in double a i i'm kind of i don't know i i'm i'm like in the middle on it i uh i i could see the arguments kind of both ways and i don't know i think it's it's okay to have an experimentation um just to see what happens to actually get some results and see, okay, if we do do this, how is that going to affect the game? How is it things going to change? Um, Cause it's frustrating. A lot of times, you know, you see a ball that's hit uh, extremely hard ripped and you're like, Oh my God, there's a, they have a guy right there, <laughs> you know, right behind the second baseman in the outfield and he's making a play on the ball. I mean, how many times you see Anthony Rizzo rip one or Schwarber with the Cubs and you're like, that's balls crushed. And then there's a guy right there. Um, so, you know, I understand what you're saying and, and, and I understand what shifting is probably not the biggest 
detriment to offense in baseball. You know, uh, the strikeouts are obviously way out of control. Uh, um, Guan up, and now that's both on the hitters. One, you know, going for homers, but a lot of that's on the pitchers. Uh, they throw harder than ever now, and so. I, I think the real focus needs to be on what to do to get more contact in the first place. And maybe that's moving the mound back. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that is, um, but I do think they're going to need some sort of, you know, change at some point, because I mean, we, it, the game's kind of going this direction. And if they like dead in the ball, as they talk about, then there's going to be even less runs because anything that's not hit out of the park is come is pretty much an out nowadays for the most part, you don't really, there's now more like singles are almost gone. Like, you know, you get every once in a while, but like the last three years, there've been more strikeouts and hits. That's the only, those are the only times in baseball history that has ever happened for 150 years that has never happened until 2017, I believe, or 2018 that there've been more strikeouts than hits total. Um, so I don't know. It'll be interesting. Obviously they want to see what happens if more balls land in play, if batting averages go up, um, maybe it will happen. I don't know. I don't really think it'll have a huge impact just because as I mentioned, strikeouts are the biggest factor, but I don't have a problem with seeing if something does change it. And, you know, I, I agree on the one hand, like baseball's like you, the teams are smarter nowadays, you know, like you're going to put guy. I mean, there's been 150 years. You always put a guy where you think the guy's going to hit the ball for the most part. And now teams are just doing it more and more often than ever. The, the interesting thing was the Cubs, in particular, weren't really a big shifting team under Joe Madden. They weren't, they were under um, Dale Swain. They shifted a lot, uh, but then Joe Madden wasn't a big shifter. Um, so I, I don't actually really find, I don't think there's a big correlation between the shifting and teams like success as to which teams shift the most, but maybe it doesn't affect. So I don't really have a problem with experimentation. I trust Theo Epstein. So if he thinks we should experiment with it, I'm okay with it. Well, Jeremy Randall. stole just about everything I was about to say. Um, shifting more under Dale Swaim, they shifted into failure under Dale Swaim, uh, more so than not. Um, but no, ev everything you just said is more or less my thoughts on the matter. I I'm maybe a little more against it than you are. Uh, you know, this is all within the caveat of it's, a, it's an experiment in the minor leagues, and this is probably um, a, a fair ways away from being instituted in the majors, if at all. But I also said that about the, the second base ghost runner in extra innings. And here we are with that now. As Jeremy said, teams have been shifting to some degree for decades. You play your center fielder uh, shifted uh, more towards left or more towards right. You play your corner infielders off the line or on the line. Um, you know, putting a, your, your third baseman in short right, if you've got a big time pull hitter up there, is just a more extreme version of that. I, I'm not real big on them dictating where defenses are allowed to play and how def how defenses are allowed to play just because it's not a slippery slope in and of itself, but I, I worry it kind of opens that door to dictating how you can play. You know, the, these are extreme examples, but what about not being allowed to throw a certain type of pitch because no one's ever able to get a hit off that? Um, you know, it, it, I, I just worry that it's going to lead to them tinkering with the game more than they already have and again this is all within the caveat of it being experimental nothing is guaranteed where where else are you going to try these things out if not the miners i just worry it leads to more tinkering and more fixing things that don't need to be fixed because 
if there's one hallmark of Rob Manfred's tenure as commissioner, it's constant, cre constantly creating solutions in search of problems, it constantly tinkering with things that nobody really asked to be tinkered with. And maybe that nobody asked for them isn't the best argument against them, but I just feel like occasionally it's okay to leave well enough alone. And I just worry that things like eliminating certain elements of the shift lead eventually, maybe far down the road and maybe not as extreme, but lead eventually to, to uh, legislating other things out of the game. And I'm not a real big fan of continuing to, to limit play like that. Uh, I, I would just say that I, while you are right, I don't think there are any pitches that are illegal. Um, but you, there are things that are illegal to do like while you're pitching. You can't you know, use certain substances that will obviously make a pitch move more. So, so they do like, you know, there are limits to things you're allowed to do. Um, and while I don't necessarily agree with what they're doing, I do think they have to do something. I, I don't think we can continue. Like I, if you watch kind of old baseball, like I know, you know, baseball from 20, 30 years ago, it's more, it is more exciting to see so much, more, much more, more action. Like now everything is just walk, strike out, Homer, for the most part, you know, that's like 60% of baseball. When back in the day, you're seeing so much more, you were seeing so many more, you know, base hits, so many more, you know, steals, as Greg was mentioning, uh, sacrifices. While I'm, you know, obviously I don't think it's the best play in the world, but you know, things were more exciting. So I, I do think like they need to do something about this growing rate of strikeouts that are, you know, plaguing the game. So I think it was one of the, I mean, Leo, Theo talked about it when he left the Cubs, he talked about how, you know, he was a part of this group that was kind of detrimental to baseball at, you know, that he had responsibility for that, for the way the game was being played, because they were just trying to create the most efficient teams. And now, you know, obviously stepping out, being consultant to the commissioner on Major League Baseball, I think that's just pretty much his job right now is to try to bring this back a little bit. Okay, let's put some limits on things. So I don't necessarily have a problem with tinkering to try to, you know, bring things back to a way it was, because, I, I, we all want to see, you know, 99, you want to strike the other player, you want to win. So you want to see hundred or 400, 500 foot homers. You want to see hundred mile per hour fastballs, but like the game's getting longer. Guys are taking forever to throw pitches, like, you know, get in the box. It, I, I do think like, yeah, there has to be something to get a little bit more action going to keep people more inv involved. Sure. And, and that's fair. And I'm not necessarily right just for thinking that, you know, I don't want them to continue to tinker. Um, again, my, my concern is really more that Manfred's going to kind of take this as a blank check to continue tinkering and adding and maybe tinkering and adding, you know, as you said accurately, isn't necessarily all bad. Um, I, I just worry we're going to keep tinkering and adding uh, things that don't necessarily need to be messed with is all. But, you know, this, this is not necessarily that. And as you said, we, we have legislated certain pitches and certain things out of the game. Uh, so you certainly have a point there. I, I would just hope that at some point we get to the point where we say, okay, the game is good right now. Let's keep any rule changes out of it, at least for a couple of years to see, to see how everything kind of works. Uh, so instead of continuing to experiment. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that thought. And I, I want to add this now, um, you know, in the NFL and, and for all the NFL has many flaws, uh, but they do have a competition committee. And that's comprised of, of all of the teams have some sort of represent or, or at least an elected group of, of multiple teams that are involved. To my knowledge, Major League Baseball doesn't really have anything that is team driven. Everything comes out of the office of the commissioner, 
and all of his, uh, you know, guys that he's got working for him. Right. And I think that's kind of the way that, that baseball's always been that, you know, and I'm sure we've all probably watched Billy Corbin screwball within the last couple of years. And, you know, uh, Rob Manfred has a, a major role in, in what happened in steroids. And it wasn't always how they figured all this out or whatever happened and whatever they did to people was certainly not above board. We, we know that for certain. So in my mind, Rob Manfred is, is someone not to be trusted. Um, to be, to be quite honest. And um, I, you know, per, per, Theo would be somebody that I would trust. I don't, there's nothing in, 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 in my mind that says, and, and perhaps Manfred is putting the right people around him, but I, I, he doesn't, is he's not someone that has earned my trust to be able to, um, you know, properly run baseball amongst all of these, uh, you know, rule changes and, and, and those things right now. So he's, he's starting behind the deck, especially with, how he and Bud Selig handled steroids, uh, just to be honest. No, I, I, I 100% agree with you, uh, Greg. Um, I don't trust Rob Manfred at all either. Um, that's why I'm putting all my faith in Theo, who's the new consultant on competition and rules and stuff like that, who had some quotes when these rules came out. But when these stuff come, when this stuff comes out from Rob, from Manfred, I, I'm like, no. But if Theo is willing to put some weight behind it, then I give a little pause. I say, okay, well, maybe let's see. Well, tinkering has been like the word of the minute here for the last 15 minutes or so. And if there's any three people in my life who know how to tinker, it's the three of you. So I'm not surprised to get that from all of you. Tinkering to either is the chance. uh, We've talked about the AAA uh, uh, base being basically enlarged. It's going to be a little bit bigger. In AA, it's more about defensive requirements on where infielders can stand. The other rule changes impact a ball, but these are some pretty different things that we haven't seen in Major League Baseball. A quick look at it in all high A, there is a requirement that pitchers must step off the rubber when attempting a pickoff. In all of low A, there's also a limit of two pickoff attempts per plate appearance. The low A West will also be impacted by a 15 second pitch clock, while the LA, uh, the low A Southeast will have an automated ball strike system. Randall, that's something you've been advocating for for years. I have no issue with that, and especially experimenting with that in the minors. I've said for years that major league umpires need some kind of augmentation, some kind of technological help. Um, I think as pitches start to move more and more as they start to be thrown harder and harder. I think it's not less, less and less possible. And I think not to put any sympathy upon the umpires here, I'm not one who's ever going to be accused of being sympathetic to umpires, but I think to an extent it's unfair to ask them to accurately track whether a couple inches in diameter, little white sphere accurately passes through the edge of an invisible box that's defined as being somebody's chest to their kneecaps. I, I think at some point you have to start looking at some kind of technological help for umpires, and I'm all for them uh, doing that as a pilot program in the low minors. It, it needs to happen at some point. You can say the technology is not there, and that's certainly fair. The technology is going to get there at some point. The human eye is not. The human eye has been around for a very long time. It's not getting any better. Technology will at some point, and at some point you have to start seeing where the technology is and how much it can help you do this. Yeah. Randall, uh, a, a thousand percent with you there. We see that it works in soccer. They use it extensively through professional soccer. Is it a goal or is it not? And the, I think the place where, where they did it first is tennis. I mean, you see the automated 
it, was it in or out in tennis? And it works every single time and it works every single time in soccer. Uh, I baseball is the next natural thing here. Now, if, if you want me to also complain about football here, how can we have no idea where the, where the football is actually at on the field? And yeah. did somebody cross the plane of the goal line uh, or did they actually make it 10 yards? Who knows? Nobody that's that's like my there. favorite thing in football is the, the total, chain arbit- the chain gang, just a total arbitrary of spots in general. A guy will go down the side, the side judge will mark it, but he'll, he'll stand there, but then they're like, somebody will throw him a ball or another player will knock him. So then he's got to like get back to his mark and then somebody else will come in and like the ref will place the ball and then they'll bring out the chain gang who is just like eyeballing it on the other sideline. And then they have to run out there and then eyeball it. It's like this, this would have moved like seven, like come on, like so many times. And then they're like, Oh, it's this far apart. Like, right. what are you talking about? Yeah. It's hilarious. How, how many times have we seen the chain gang come out and they, they clearly spot it incorrectly? And we're, we're, all of us are just sitting here at home going, how do you not see this? But I'm, I'm actually going to be a little contrarian on this one. Um, I'm not a big proponent of replay in sports just because I think in general, I mean, obviously this we'll, we'll find out a little more, but in general... I feel like it's been a drag. Like you were watching all these college basketball games. I don't need every game in the final two minutes to be 45 minutes because we have to see, did it go off this guy's fingertips to go out or this? And it's like, it's so much, everything's a review now. And so part of that's going to come to baseball at some point. Like what happens? Let's say a pitch is a ball four, a pitch is a strike three. You have, there's two outs. There's a guy on, cause these are things that all occurred in the Atlantic league where they tried it. Like, let's say you have a guy on, you know, first he's trying to make a steal or something like that. Like, is there going to be a delay? Is it going to the ump's ear? And then he has to make a call. And then like that guy who's trying to steal, is he running or not or whatever? Like, these are all factors that are, to use Ron's word, they're all going to have to be tinkered with. Um, Cause like, it, it kind of throws people off. And when they used in the Atlantic league, there were like things that the players were getting mad about. Cause there were pitches that everybody agreed was a ball. And there's the thing called a strike. Like, let's say a, cause what they're doing now, I think, is they're having it more two-dimensional, whereas the Atlantic League, it was three-dimensional, like the whole plate. And now it's just the front of the plate, I think, because you could throw like a backdoor two-seam or something, and the ball is breaking. It's not a strike when it crosses the plate to front, but then it would break on the back of the plate and hit the back of the plate. And the automated system says that's a strike because it hit the back of the plate. And everybody would say that would not be a strike because there's no way a batter could hit that It would if it's just breaking over the back of the plate. But, you know, so there's things we'll see. Like Randall said, you know, obviously technology will probably get there. They'll have to tinker with it, as we all said. But I don't know. I'm not a big into all of this, you know, breaking everything down to the minutia. I hate the whole thing at the second base now or third base, a runner sliding in and you have to, and they're holding the, the, the glove on him. And then we're like, there's a review and we're breaking down. Did he come off the bag by an inch? for one millisecond as the thing like come on everybody for 150 years that's a safe call because nobody can see that the eye can't see that as Rand- randall's saying you know what the eye can't see but like we don't need everything the whole point of replay was to correct this is just my replay beef i'm going off now but the whole point of replay was to correct like obvious errors things like that were called obvious and like okay that was a now it's like everything is so like we have to break it down so much and like spend 10 minutes breaking it down and to me i'm like okay, I'm okay living with some mistakes sometimes. Like, you know, things don't go your way sometimes. So I'm, I'm like, okay with that. You know, beef on a Friday, is that allowed this time of year? Um, 
<laughs> yeah, Jeremy, I know you and I have differing differing opinions on replay. Um, I think we both agree that it, it's better to get the, the big mistakes right yes. versus wrong. And I'm generally for replay, but I agree that there's some fine-tuning that could be done. Did a guy hover over the bag uh, by a couple millimeters for a, a picosecond? Um, so I, I'm not against maybe them doing some tweaking of what you can and can't review or, you know, if, if you can't come up with something definitive within 30 seconds of watching the replay, I'm fine with them doing some tweaking. But ultimately, I'm, I'm for review just because there, I can think of so many times where the first base umpire badly missed uh, a call at first. The guy was a foot off the bag or, you know, you could tell the guy got in there just fine and the umpire calls him, calls him out or calls him safe incorrectly. I'm for getting those right ultimately. So we can, we can quibble about when and where and how much replay should be used, but ultimately I'm for it, and I'm for getting at least the obvious ones right. Can we talk about Armando Galarraga real quick? He comes to mind as well. Uh, he'd have a no-hitter to his name, and maybe – He'd have maybe, a perfect game to his name. He'd have a perfect he, game. Even better. He, yeah. I'm sorry, he'd have a, a perfect game to his name. And maybe he got more notoriety from being kind of a career journeyman pitcher who – quote unquote, didn't pitch a perfect game than he would have as just, just, and again, this is all relative, but just pitching a perfect game and being kind of a career mediocre pitcher who did that. But yeah, he would, that would be another footnote in major league history. If we'd had replay that night is you would have had another perfect game. There have only been so many of those and there would have been one more. And it's not like he gave up a like a rocket base hit that was taken away by an infielder he he got a routine out on a put out and it was called safe because the umpire uh, in jim joyce's words kicked the shit out of it his own words that night and there was no mechanism for replay and ultimately i'm for there being a mechanism to overturn the obvious errors in that regard two of these rules are certainly a nod towards pace of play yeah, 15 second pitch clock and the limit of two pickoff attempts per plate appearance across low A. Greg, we've seen this in the majors in the last year too. the implementation of basically a runner at second base and extra innings. This is certainly something to speed up games. Where do you draw the line here between wanting to be cognizant of things like pace of play and trying to keep games around or maybe under three hours and implementing rules that ultimately change what the game looks like and how the game is played, even something like pickoff attempts. Now you're beginning to tinker with that battle between a pitcher and a runner at first. And there is some drama that plays out between that, even if a pickoff isn't necessarily the most exciting thing to watch in baseball. Okay. So I, I have two thoughts. I want to start with the ghost runner here though. So, it, it, and this is completely anecdotal. I, I, I'm sure that's, somebody here has data on this um but at least the minor league level the away team has a significant advantage by uh batting in the order that they do right um i i be, because it, it, it it's essentially the opposite of what we see in like college football when they play overtime right like you know what you have to get so it makes it easier right you kick the field goal to win the game instead of having to score a touchdown right in in minor league baseball because you know most of these are, are very young guys especially at that at that a level um i i found it to be if if the lug nuts and whomever the south bend cubs went to extra innings i might as well leave now because south bend's going to win the game because they are the they were the away team and they were they could 
they had more flexibility basically in, in what they could do. Now the argument back is, well, the manager just needs to manage different and play it like it's uh, play it differently. Right. Um, but I, from, from my perspective, it just, because of the quality of the players uh, and their, and their ability, it just worked so much better for the away team uh, in terms of uh, that, that ghost runner on second base, probably at the major league level. I think it was fine. Um, you know, I, I, especially at the minor league level, I'm always in it for bonus baseball, right? I love bonus baseball. I think it's good for everybody. Uh, it probably even helps the concession stands for the most part, maybe not necessarily sell any more beers, but they, they have an opportunity to, to, to sell some more stuff. People get to, you know, they, they get to see a little bit more. I know maybe on a, a fireworks night, that's not necessarily the thing that you want and et cetera, et cetera. But you know, everybody's already at the game at that point in time. Um, so I, I, I'm not a fan of the ghost runner, um, you know, adding that person on at second base, but that wasn't really your question though, either Ronan. What were you, what were you really asking? I was just wondering how you feel about rules that are injected into the game to speed things up, keep the pace of play going, but also impact things like the flow of baseball pitch clocks, for example, that's something we're not used to seeing for major league baseball players, for example, is 15 seconds even enough time for a minor league pitcher in that moment there to get their thoughts together, make the right pitch and hit the glove they need to hit. Uh, I, I think it, I think the, some of these additions of rules are being done at the wrong level. I think 15 seconds is not the right place at low A to do this. Hmm. Um, I think as Randall pointed out, it's going to end up being misconstrued. Oh, if they could do this in low A, they can do it everywhere. And I, I don't think that that's the appropriate place to do it. To be quite honest with you, if, if they if they were really serious about this and they really wanted to put it into Major League Baseball, they should be doing it in AAA. They should be doing it in AAA and it should be happening at spring training right now. But I, I think this is just a something to say we tried and whatever, but I, 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 I don't see it uh, working the way that I think everybody wants it to. I, it, it, it's, it's an experiment to do something to say we did it, I think. I, I kind of disagree. I, I, I think um, I think the game, like we all talk, we're talking about changing the game and all this stuff, but I think we need to realize, or at least to be, that the game has already changed a lot. Like if you watch a game 20, 30 years ago, longer, it, guys are throwing pitches at, they're not waiting Pedro Baez two minutes or whatever to throw a pitch like you you could watch a game and there's guys throwing pitches like you know four or five pitches within a minute and a half you know like they're moving like and the game now is like it's kind of like okay after every pitch it's like a whole thing it's like it started off in the playoffs obviously and then it got to like the Yankees and the Red Sox when they're playing like four hour regular season games and now it's like everything every pitch every moment is kind of like and I don't necessarily have a problem with installing it, especially at a low level, because I feel like you get some like kind of training there. Like, okay, you're conditioning these guys at a young age to move fast and to kind of go, and maybe that'll keep with them as they move up the ladder. And I, I, I kind of agree, like, you know, it is a little bit to put down low and then we're not doing it at the top, but I do think you can kind of like condition them and, I think that I don't know. I I don't necessarily have with the pickoffs. Like the rule is two, but you can't do more. You just have to get the guy out. Like you could do a third one, but if you, you just have to get him out. If you don't get him out, then you get penalized, like a ball. Oh, so, oh, they add a ball to the count? Yes, I think so. 
I believe it's a ball. I believe if I believe it's a ball, if you if you throw if you throw over the third time, you don't get him out. I think it's a ball. There is a penalty. I know you can get him out. It's either a ball or a balk, but I don't think it's a balk because I don't think it, I don't think it's a base. Um, but if you throw over, I think they add a ball. If you don't get him out, if you get him out, then it doesn't count. Uh, I mean, it counts as an out, but it doesn't count as a third pickoff. Um, but you know, I I don't mind like I don't mind because trying to get guys to steal more bases. I don't mind forcing guys to throw off. They banned the you know, the, the fake, uh, you know, third to first move a couple of years ago, that used to be a thing. And they banned that, uh, probably just to get everybody from yelling balk at the ballpark, whenever that would happen, you know, nobody wanted to hear that anymore. Like, you know, you get 15 pickoffs and the whole crowd's booing the opposing pitcher. Um, but like, you know, I, I just feel like the game has evolved to this point where things that like, and this is kind of true with everything to be honest, but like, when you're more successful at something, you start to do it more. And, you know, pitchers have slowed down because they become more successful at that batters. Come on. They're concentrating more and things that were 10, 15 years ago, they were moving, you know, they, they just get a little bit increased over time. And, and so I, I don't know. I just, I just see like, we're at this point where if you don't do anything, it's just going to keep going. So I don't necessarily have a problem trying to correct certain things. When, because we all say like we don't want baseball to be changed, but the game changes by itself. I mean, the rules don't necessarily, the rules aren't changing, but the game is changing. Jeremy, Jeremy makes a very good point, as he so often does, is that we, we all have our own ideas as to how the game needs to change. Um, it seems like they're very specific. So, some of us are for an automatic ball and strike system, some of us are for changing the way replay is used. Um, but Jeremy makes a good point is that the game does change on its own. Players get better. Certain trends will cycle in and out and that uh, certain things that can occasionally do have to be tweaked um, in order to keep up with that. We wouldn't have the ghost runner rule if it weren't for the COVID-19 pandemic. It was instituted last season specifically to keep players from having to sit there for potentially an extra hour and an hour, hour and a half, two hours as you go into the 16th. Um, yeah, the, the game changes and things happen, and th that introduces certain rule changes. And as, as, uh, as Greg said, it's a matter kind of of who's instituting those rule changes. I don't think any of us particularly trust Rob Manfred to institute those unilaterally, but if he has the right people around him who have had their heads in the game for a number of decades, and they all agree that this is something that should be tried, then there's, it's, it's not as harmful to experiment with these different rule changes. All right, Greg, two questions here before we let you yeah. go. Uh, sure. Rapid fire, one baseball, one hoops. Let's start with baseball. All those years you spent in the Midwest League watching the lug nuts. Who's the best mascot in the former Midwest League? Uh, it's Big Lug. It's Big Lug. Wow. Un un unequivocally Big Lug. A shot to the heart of Ronan. I had a soft spot for Ozzy T. Cougar, my guy at Kane County. He was a wonderful mascot. Uh, lots of good mascots, though, across the uh, across the old league. Ozzy T. Cougar, he's now going to be in a rivalry with uh, Squeeze the Mustard and the Anthropomorphic Thief Ketchup Bottle for the Rosemont-based <laughs> Chicago Dogs. I had, I had so, no idea about Squeeze the Mustard. Oh, yes. He's a, he's a yellow Philly Fanatic-esque creature with a mustard squeeze bottle hat his name is squeeze the most what's the other one called beef uh, i don't know that he has a name but it's a ketchup bottle in like oh, a, okay. a classic thief's mask and a trench coat uh you know being the chicago dogs their whole theme is no ketchup so the ketchup is the villain um so i, I can't wait to see squeeze the mustard and ozzy t cougar 
facing off in this new cats and dogs rivalry in the independent league. Well, I'm all catch up. I think we know that Greg, last question for you before you go today, your team is out. My team was never in it. Who's going to be the final two teams standing here. What's our national championship matchup in men's hoops this year? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the bracket of integrity. So I'm going to tell you who I have and it is Gonzaga in Illinois. Okay. Okay. Jeremy, I want to throw in on that one too. I got Gonzaga in Illinois too. Okay. Randall, how about your bracket? Yeah, sure. I have Gonzaga in Illinois too. I'll just go with the crowd here. Oh, Randall with the bracket. Yeah. Greg, thank you so much for joining us here. Always nice to chat about the lug nuts and uh, pick your brain a little bit about these minor league rule changes. We'll have to have you back on once we get into the year, update us about what it's like at lug nuts games this year. And let me know how this 15 second pitch clock and the limit on pickoff attempts all plays out in little and minor league ball. We're eager to hear that from you. Sure thing. Thanks for having me, guys. We'll see you later. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. All right, before we bring this thing home, I want to bring it back to the Cubs here for a minute. A very happy birthday today to the skipper of the Chicago Cubs, David Ross, turns 44 years old. Jeremy, we've seen sort of a year of David Ross as the manager. Obviously, last season, the COVID-60 game season he did win a division championship his first year as a major league baseball manager how do you feel here at the start of year two with david ross at the helm of the club so yeah uh originally you know i was not necessarily like when joe was gone the most gung-ho biggest david ross fan because you know it, it always felt like they were grooming him for this spot even while joe was here and and while i didn't necessarily have a problem with letting joe go i was always kind of like you know let's let's you know, let's explore a little bit. Like we don't have to automatically just go with David Ross just because he's David Ross. Like I was always kind of like, I never understood the whole David Hart Ross thing. Like I appreciate everything he did as a cub. I thought, you know, his second year, obviously he had a monster year for a backup catcher, the game seven Homer amazing off Andrew Miller, one of the greatest moments ever. Um, But, you know, his first year they brought him in is like John Lester's, you know, whisper or whatever and i was always i was kind of like okay we don't really need this catcher who's not going to give you anything offensively now i did underrate his ability to uh you know as a defensive catcher as framing how much that attributed ability to throw from behind the plate obviously not really knowing like i always thought it was kind of weird the whole chemistry thing but you know that played out obviously there was like talk of bringing in johnny gomes at the time too and i was like we don't need to bring all these weird boston guys in just because john lester wants them but, uh, you know, Wellington Castillo, you kind of, I liked Wellington Castillo and he kind of shoved him out of a job. So I was like, I don't know why we're doing this, but David Ross has grown on me. Um, when we were in the hiring, I, um, spot, you know, the names that were out there, I, I liked the, um, oh, the name is blanking on me, but, uh, Astros bench coach who at the Joe, time, Joe Espada, Joe Espada. Yeah. Who we don't even know if what would have happened had they hired him. I don't know how involved he was with the whole trash can situation but uh you know and, and ross and the whole first of all let me just say that whole thing about ross gave like this inspiring locker room speech during his interview process was really weird to me like that too is i didn't get that and i don't know why they're like trying to sell that it reminded me of the whole dale swim i think when dale swim was hired they did the fake interviews fake press conferences which was what the bears wanted bruce arians to do and when he was nfl coach of the year and super winning coach now and Bruce Aarons was like hell no I ain't doing no fake interviews like fake press conference so it was weird that Theo went ahead with that 
but I kind of grew on it because I do like the idea of him being like an extension of the front office because I trust the front office. And while I know they'll say like, oh, David has control of the clubhouse, David makes in-game decisions, obviously he's going to be very reliant on what's going on in the front office, more so than Joe Madden was who, you know, probably had more control, probably more control than most major league managers do. Uh, he probably had more autonomy than, so I like that about it. And, and you know, the guys respect him. and they they love him i mean there's a different dynamic there obviously being a former player but i do think he has command of the the clubhouse and i think he has there's respect there and i think he's he has the ability to get on guys like i i think even though they respect him and they're friends i think he'll still get on because he got on them as a player and i think they're definitely definitely get him on a manager so I, I don't have a problem with the David Ross era. I hope the David Ross era doesn't just go in the tank after this year. I feel a little bad for him. We'll see what's going to happen next year. You know, so like, I don't want him having two good start years and then he's got no talent and then he's kind of whatever. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of the David Ross era. I'm happy for him. And I like having him as the representative of the Chicago Cubs. You know, Jeremy stole just about everything I was going to say again. <laughs> Ronan, you're gonna... Keep go, go to Randall first, Ronan, because apparably I, I try, I try, man. He's lying about making up uh, box scores and everything, but you got nothing to add on David Ross, Randall. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, Jeremy, Jeremy said most of what I was going to say. I was not necessarily for hiring him at the outset. Um, I was a Joe Espada guy, too. I really liked his uh, resume of working both as a, a base coach, uh, front office positions, bench coach spent a lot of time in dugouts he's managed internationally uh in the winter league so he was my pick uh for the cubs manager and of course in retrospect we don't know how his involvement with the astros might have affected things um david ross yeah i think he's done a great job i think he ended up being the perfect manager for the just the unprecedented season that last season was as jeremy said we know he has the ability to get on anthony rizzo and the rest of that team and tell them when he thinks they haven't really come to play that day. So I'll, I'll take it in a little different direction. Some of the things that he does that maybe I'm not the biggest fan of, and I think these are all correctable and I think they will come in time. And I, I think what he, his flaws are the ones he shares with a lot of major league managers. Um, I think he trusts certain guys too much. It, a certain reliever maybe doesn't have it and hasn't had it for like a week now. He'll still go to that guy. It, hoping he can kind of pitch his way out of it. And Joe Madden was the same way. Does his name uh, rhyme with Treg Brimbrell? You, you know, I don't want to cast any stones, cast any aspersions here. Uh, I'll say that um, where Joe Madden was often a fan of going to Pedro Strope and Carl Edwards Jr. when they were both kind of on the downturn and kind of didn't really have it consistently anymore. Ross will kind of do that with guys now. And it's the same with his lineup. Sometimes he'll keep a guy who hasn't been hitting not only in the lineup, but in a productive spot in the lineup. But again, these are things that all major league managers kind of struggle with. Um, It's the ones who distinguish themselves in the clubhouse who I think are great. And Ross has shown that he has that ability. Um, And going back to what Jeremy said, I hope that David Ross's tenure as manager doesn't end with an unceremonious firing in another two or three seasons because he didn't have a team on the field in front of him. I hope he's able to experience more than one 60-game division title in his tenure as manager for the Cubs because I, I really do think he's a great fit here. Culturally. Culturally, absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to come down to he needs the players to compete. And I am skeptical that the Cubs have enough starting pitching to compete in this NL Central this year. If he still had you, Darvish, maybe it's a little bit of a different look. But David Ross has done a lot of things right, as you guys have both mentioned up to this point. He certainly, I think, symbolized a cheaper hire going from how expensive Joe Madden was and sort of the power that he brought in. They went with their own guy. They went with the cheap guy. It sort of was a signal of what was coming with this front office and even with the payroll with this team and bringing David Ross in. So I think David Ross's future is going to depend a lot on, well, who's Chris Bryant? Is he healthy? Is he going to end up sticking around? Is Anthony Rizzo getting this extension? What's going to happen with Javi? And what's the starting rotation going to look like on August 1st? So there's a lot of things going on here. Um, No major red flags, I guess, with David. I think, like you said, Randall, culturally, he is a great fit with this team. He's a World Series hero, right? And he's a guy who's well-respected in the league, but he's going to need help putting together that major league team. And the Cubs got a lot of money coming off the book in the next year or so. Ballpark is going to open again. Jeremy's already got tip for the home man. Like the money's back now. It's time for the Cubs to start spending money again, like a big league team in a top market, like the Chicago Cubs should be perennially top five in payroll in Major League Baseball. It's not going to happen this year. Maybe next year the purse string gets open up again and David Ross is going to have a chance to compete, but he's going to be challenged this year. There's no question about it. It's going to be a long season. The Cubs have obvious holes and there's going to be some tension. You've got big time players on this team, Javi, Bryant, Rizzo, that potentially are going to be going into opening day without contract extensions. That's going to carry over them. Wilson Contreras is a guy who could potentially be traded. There's nobody on this team that's really guaranteed to be sticking around, you know? So I think David Ross is going to have a very challenging year ahead of him here. And we're going to get a much better sense of how he can manage that clubhouse facing this conflict this year versus the unique season that was last year. And I think he did a very nice job, all things considered, last year. I think he did a nice job, too. And I think, you know, in regards to this year, I think you just got to have the guys, you know, focus on this year. This is it. You know, whether you want to say it's a final hurrah or whatever, um, they they can only focus on what's in front of them, uh, what's going to happen this year. And so this is it. This is the year. And they're out there to win. As David Ross said last year, if they're playing for something, if they're playing for – anything he wants to win it you know he wants to win that championship so they're gonna go out there and play hard and I I, you know I I like the staff I like having Andy Green you know obviously a former manager um as the bench coach um Hadavi seems pretty good you know the pole pitching infrastructure seems pretty solid uh we'll see how the offensive hitting trick I know Bryant was a big fan of Andy Haynes that's why they brought him back uh, not, uh, I meant, sorry, not Andy Haynes. Uh, Andy Haynes is up in Milwaukee. Uh, Iaposi, Anthony Iaposi, excuse me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see how the rest of the staff is. And they have some, you know, differences this year with Willie Harris at third base, uh, planking, you know, on trying to get guys to third, laying on the ground. I like that. But, uh, I like Ross and I think, I think he's the type of guy, I think he'll have him focused. I think he'll have him ready for this season. And I think Ross is a good guy and a good fit. All right, some programming notes here. We've got one more show until opening day. We're going to do another recording next Friday. Some things we're going to talk about on that show. We want to talk about the catcher position with the Cubs. Maybe we'll get some more clarity on the health of Austin Romine between now and next Friday. Also, we'll break down the pitchers by then. We'll make our predictions. Who's going to make this team? What is the opening day pitching rotation going to look like? What's that opening day bullpen going to look like we're also going to branch out and i've not discussed this with jeremy and randall so i'm putting them on the spot right now telling them 
next week's show, predictions will be made. So all of us, let's come prepared next week. We are going to predict division winners, wild card winners. We'll also throw out our early precursor for the pennant and World Series champs. We'll be making our predictions on uh, National League and American League MVP and Cy Young Award winners, as well as the NL and AL Rookie of the Year. And then we'll throw in some sort of personal Cubs predictions, who we think maybe who's going to lead the team in home runs. I'm going to get a whole bunch of things ready to go, and we're going to banter back and forth on that. And then once we get into the season, we're going to have to get creative about what this podcast is going to look like, how often we record how we're going to record around different series is something that we're going to finalize here in the next week or so and make sure we've got a game plan ahead of opening day. Before we go, though, Randall, I'm not going to let you get away with lying to our audience here. You claim a Gonzaga, Illinois national championship game. However, I have reason to believe you have never filled out an NCAA bracket. Well, your, your reason to believe is that I've told you I've never filled out an NCAA bracket. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how is public. that possible? And that is you know, college college basketball is just not my sport. Uh, college football, uh, I'm much more interested in among the collegiate sports. College basketball, it, it 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 it's just not something that's central to me. I will pay attention to the championship game every year to know who won, which is important. Uh, the, the lead up to it, it's it's never been one of my things. It's amazing because it's like. This and the Super Bowl are probably like the two biggest sporting events, and and they're the ones that draw like everybody. Like everybody has casual fans, like people that don't even know what basketball is. They're just picking on the colors of the jerseys or the name of the teams or whatever. So it's amazing to me that you've never filled out a bracket. That is just an incredible thing to me. It's amazing. Well, we all know that there's one thing I'm susceptible to. It's it's unrelenting uh, peer pressure. Like, like the wind and the rain on the rock, just wearing it down year by year. You got me to do fantasy football last season. Got you do a podcast. You got me to do a podcast. <laughs> and, and so, you got know. Got you on Twitter. Well, you on know, Twitter. It's, it's been a little while since that was the case. But, you know, maybe another couple of years you'll, you'll wear me down. And when Ronan's um, IU Hoosiers are, are back in prominence by then, you'll have convinced me to fill out a bracket. Well, 2025. Brutal. Jeremy said it, not me. Randall, who you got Sunday, the Ramblers or the Illini? Boy, you know, that's, that's tough. I think from what little I know, I'll probably take the Illini. But uh, Sister Jean, she's got friends in high places, and you can't discount that. It's true. It's going to be Nightmares have started. I know. I know worried. they have. Wednesday night, Jeremy said, I do not want to play Loyola. That was a direct text over to us. And here they are all day. I just wanted Loyola to win. I just want the matchup. I think it's going to be compelling. Yes, I think the Illini are the better team. But Loyola is going to play them tough. I think it's going to be close in the second half. And then who knows? Some crazy things have happened today. One thing is certain, though, the Big Ten um, doesn't want to do any more overtime. Uh, tough day for overtime teams in the conference today. Yeah, Ohio State, Purdue, the biggest upsets of the day. Uh, Rutgers got away with one today, so they, they got a little bit. That was an upset of over Clemson, the 10 over 7. But, uh, yeah, Ohio State, that's an incredible loss. 215, wow. Well, good luck to you Sunday, Jeremy. I know you're going to be tense. There'll be oh, some yeah. sweating on the north side uh, this weekend, but have fun with that one. That's it for today's edition of Behind the Yellow Line. Thanks again to our buddy Greg in Lansing, Michigan. Always fun talking minor league baseball. We've got one more podcast before opening day. We're doing our MLB previews. Join us next Friday right here on Behind the Yellow Line.